Hi, before we start the show, Derek has a message for you. Oh, it's on me now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> always brush your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also, always know that any movie and or TV show that we talk about on this particular show, going back to you, Tim. Uh, we're going to spoil the endings, pretty much, and anything that's important, because we like talking. We're blabber mouths. <laughs> I'll say you are, Tim. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> we know here that cinema is a very precious, wonderful thing and we don't want to spoil that for you so just be warned right and don't forget the floss too after right. you've brushed your teeth yes yeah up and down not just side to side come on guys get it with it thank you this is stand by You know, you're supposed to always start these October Halloween things with, Hello, boys and ghouls. <laughs> I, I hate that. I know. I know. Yeah, everything know. does that. I think boys and ghouls. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get to that. Right. So we're, Let's we're, not blow our wad now. No, 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 no. no slow no, her down. No, slow that our... stroke down. We got to <laughs> save her down, up. Slow her down. Yeah. Take the baseball. Mm-mm-mm. <laughs> so what are we going to talk about, Derek? Uh, we are going to talk about... The horror anthology movies, Creep Show. Yes. What show is this? It is Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. In the spooky Halloween season. <laughs> My name is Tim, by the way. Yeah, that's Tim over there. I'm Derek. Yeah, and that's Derek, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Creep Show. We're going to talk about uh, Creep Shows 1 and 2. Yes, and this will be a very special October. Right, we're uh, we're kind of uh, catering this October to the uh, the prolific author of horror, Stephen King. Hi, my name is Stephen King. Right, yeah, because he had something to do with these movies and many other, a plethora of others. Yeah, and no matter what you think of him, he's he's a literary horror genius. I think. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah we, he has a, a large resume of other movies, but we're just going to talk about Creep Shows 1 and 2 on this one. Right. And, and a little bit about George Romero. And some this is and that's to tide you over. Yeah. Something to tide you over. Mm. So then, shall we dig in? Ooh, I get it. I get what you just did there. Yeah. Before we start talking our way through the Creepshow movies, you must know, if you've seen it already, that Creepshow has a horror short in it that has to do with cockroaches. This happens to be a big phobia of my good friend here, Tim's. So with that said, tonight, 
as we go along moving through the first Creepshow movie and approach that particular horror short that has the cockroaches in it, we will also be sharing three terror-filled stories of true life that slowly led Tim from normalcy to straight-out buggy. We call these true terrifying tales Phobia App Roaches. <laughs> I can't do the laugh like Cryptkeeper. Cryptkeeper, help me out. <laughs> So, uh, Creepshow 1, obviously, the better of the two. Mm-hmm. And, uh... George Kennedy doesn't. He doesn't think so. No, no, he doesn't. He, <laughs> he, 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 He'll he fight you over that, and he might win. He's a big, burly motherfucker. <laughs> but he's super friendly in Creepshow yeah, 2. Yeah, he's super friendly, yeah. Uh, the original Creepshow, that was in 1982. 82, I think, right? Yep, yep, November 1982. When did you first see it? Do you know? Yeah. So, so uh, as I've said on many casts before, maybe some that are still waiting to be released, but I've talked about how my mother uh, was part of the Christian-y thing, and then probably from when I was like four to about ten, mm-hmm. she was kind of out of it. Maybe right. four to nine, somewhere around there. In that, I got in a bunch of inappropriate things that I could watch. Yeah, right. At a young <laughs> and, age, you know, yeah. Right, right. A lot of those being like horror movies because my sister was really into horror movies. Yeah, she's like, what, and, seven years older than you? Six? Yeah, yeah, seven, right. six, somewhere around there. Right, Probably on the cusp of seven. Right. Uh, so through that time, I got to see Alien and, and the Texas Chainsaw, as I've mentioned, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Creepshow was one of them. So then would you say you saw it on like VHS later, like a few years after it came out? For sure. There was a wonderful little uh, mom and pop store down from us called Westwood Video. This is in Houston. Yeah. And uh, uh, went down there and I always got to pick out something and then my sister always got to pick out something. Right. And so my sister picked out Creepshow. Sweet. And yeah, yeah. And I picked out... uh, I'm pretty sure I, I'm pretty sure I picked out Remo Williams, The Adventure. <laughs> the Adventure Begins, begins right? <laughs> yeah, which never Fred had Ward. a sequel. <laughs> oh, right, it began, it just never ended. <laughs> now, based on the Destroyer novel series that sold over 30 million copies, America's favorite tough guy comes to the screen in a movie big enough to hold him. Remo Williams. The adventure begins. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and I ended up watching half of that and being like, this is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And not liking it. And so then she put, she started watching hers and I started watching it. And I was young. I, I probably, I'm betting I was eight or somewhere around there. Right. And, uh, really being into it but yeah. getting that like ew this is creepy because the, the music you know it starts off with that music and the music's really perfect it's cheesy music mm-hmm. but it's kind of creepy cheesy music, right right so. it's campy the whole premise is to kind of cater to that those camp uh, creep show comic books of uh, the what 1950s they were or something like yeah, that yeah 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 EC comics from mm-hmm. DC now yeah, 
Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, it was basically George Romero who directed the film. He was a big fan of those comics. Under the blankets, I was always reading EC comic books, Tales from the Crypt, and those uh, EC books that that were eventually forbidden or banned by I don't know who the Comics Code, I guess. And uh, I, I always loved that stuff, and I always thought it was pretty moral. Uh, I know when when Steve King wrote Creep Show. His tagline was a laurel comic is a moral comic. And it was, you know, all the stories had little morals. You, you, the bad guys got punished and the good guys sort of not always survived. But if, if they didn't, it was because of an accident of some kind. And I, I just thought it was terrific. I used to revel in it. I used to giggle at it. You know, I used to giggle under the covers. And uh, I thought it was uh, just terrific stuff. And George Romero was looking for another project to do. And he was, and George Romero, honestly, was also looking for a project that was going to do well. Because, you know, before this... I made a film called Martin. It showed at the festival that became Sundance. And some Warner Brothers executives were there to see it. And got excited about it and called me up and said, you know, we want you to meet this guy. And we just bought a property from him. It's called Salem's Lot. And, you know, in brilliant studio executive logic, they said, that's vampires in a small town. Your movie's about vampires in a small town. Maybe you guys should get together. So Romero and Stephen King meet. They find out that they're actually fans of each other's work. Uh, They talk for a little bit about the Salem's Lot thing, but then Stephen King gives him the stand and they both talk about maybe making that as a main project, and so... In the end, Warner's decided to make Salem's Lot for TV, and not theatrical. Steve bailed, and I wasn't in, no longer invited, and uh, that's what they did. But we stayed in touch. So uh, he goes through, and he does a lot of different diverse things, and it's good he does all of those things, because it ends up building him into... To, a lot of relationships he, he he meets tom savini along the way who comes along in this and all of that stuff so it was uh kind of kismet if you mm-hmm. will but before we get too much into that how about you yeah um i watched it with my parents i believe and uh i probably would have been it would have been one of the early rated r movies i was allowed to watch and uh it would have been relatively new to uh, video at the time, maybe maybe a year or two old, but um, okay, so probably eighty three, eighty four. Yeah, because I was still in New York when and and we my family moved from uh, upstate New York to uh, Tucson, Arizona in in the summer of eighty five, and I, the reason I know this is because I was able to watch the movie from beginning to end with no issue, and after right. I moved to Tucson, an issue evolved. And I was never <laughs> able to watch the whole thing again. We'll get into that later. <laughs> right, right. Gotcha. So, yeah. And I loved it all the way, right away. Yeah. I thought right. it was rad. And then to see the guy from Cheers, you know, you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> right. Look at him. Yeah. And the yeah, guy from no. Police Squad, the TV show. <laughs> right. It was before the Naked Gun movies. <laughs> right, right. Of course. Yeah. You, you reckon, like, I, I was realizing that I was piecing together because... Again, I was probably seven, eight, maybe mm-hmm. nine when I saw it. So that made, that places it somewhere around 86, 87. Mm-hmm. And before I saw this, I know, because as a kid, and I don't know why, because I watch it now, and I still love the movie, but I, I can't believe that I, as a kid I would be as interested in it. But I saw the right stuff. Yeah, so yeah, right. And I was and really interested. And so I remember Ed Harris right. from Played that movie. John, he just, played John Glenn in the right, right. stuff. And uh, 
Yeah, I, same here. I also remembered him and was able to spot him in the creep show and think, oh, wow, that's the rape stuff guy. He's dancing really weird. <laughs> yeah, very poorly. Well, I remember at the creep show, I was doing some kind of goofy dance and then falling in a grave and getting killed with gravestone falling on my head or whatever. And um, I would have been probably 11 or 12. Okay. Yeah, around 84, uh, 83, whatever it was. I think it was closer to 84. Was that something that you said, did you see it on TV or did you rent it? We rented it, yeah. Well, how old were you? Do you remember when you came across like the VCRs and stuff like that? Did you have them pretty young? No, it was about that age. And I think we were renting VCRs at the time, too. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I don't think we bought a, our family bought a VCR until we moved to Tucson. Right. And I, and I believe we bought it at Jimco on Speedway and Culp. Come in and see how low prices can go at Jimco. <laughs> Which no longer exists, but uh, well, my, my family, uh, my, they would actually go to those places. They they were none too bright at this moment, but they would go to those places like uh, Rena Center or Aaron's Rent to Own, those kind of places. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. you'd buy a, a VCR at the time in '86, '80, well probably '85. That went for about a thousand dollars, so they probably play, paid about ten grand for that. <laughs> that <laughs> right, VHS. Those but it's a forehead. Yeah, they have huge interest payment uh, interest <laughs> markups. Right. Right, right, right. So, yeah, and this this was the time period, too, where my parents finally started to loosen up on the rated R limit, limiting for me. Okay. So, I like, right around this time is when I saw John Carpenter's The Thing for the first time. And, and, oh, wow. And an alien, like you just said. Uh, right. So, I, I, yeah, I was restricted until, just like the letter R stands for, and uh, um, <laughs> until I was about 11 or 12. Right. Right, yeah. I think I got all of my mine in between that time when my mom was non non committed to the Christian thing. So yeah. I was I literally I was watching all kinds of stuff. Like like even as a young kid I remember staying up till probably like two in the morning watching stuff on T V. Wow. Because, yeah, my mom would go to bed. I'd fake going to sleep. She'd go to sleep. And she was a super heavy sleeper. And <laughs> right. I knew that. So oh, I yeah. then I'd get up and I'd go in and I'd turn the volume down really low, sit really close to the TV, <laughs> and then watch all the stuff I shouldn't have been watching. Right. And uh, don't forget, next week, it's the head with two things. I mean, the thing with two heads. And until then, this is Elvira, the gal who put the boob back in the boob tube, saying, unpleasant dreams. <laughs> but anyway, to get into how this movie became again, yeah. uh, after the whole uh, issue with Salem's Lot fell through, Romero went his own way, of course, did his own thing, made his movies. Uh, Stephen King went his own way, did his own thing, but they remained friends and they kept talking. And apparently they were really interested in trying to get the stand made of all of, of, of King's work. They were really interested in getting the stand to, uh, into becoming a feature film. Right. Right. Uh, but after they shopped it around to different places, they realized that the stand was just going to cost way too much, be too big of a budget, and no company was going to go for it. So they had to kind of put the stand aside, and then they thought, of, well, what else could we possibly do? I actually went to Steve with a, uh, a concept for, um, I said, I wanted to do a horror anthology, but I wanted to do movies. I said, we'll do one you know, in 133 black and white, and we'll do one widescreen, and we'll do, we'll sort of trace the origins of the horror film, and they'll all be different, do one in 3D, House of Wax kind of thing. And Steve said, no, you know what? We both grew up on EC Comics. We should do a comic book. 
And so after they arrived at that idea of, of doing a horror anthology based on one of the old EC comic books, uh, that's when the thing started to take shape. And of oh, course, okay. things that started out at the beginning of the idea were, were taken out and stuff, like with all artistic endeavors. So things were changed and stuff, but eventually they got to the stage of what they wanted. Stephen King wrote the screenplay, and then George Romero basically said, I'll just direct what you write. Uh, which was a new thing for him. He hadn't really done that. Uh, everything he had directed up till that time, I believe he had wrote himself, or at least co-wrote with someone else. Oh, wow. A couple of the stories were stories that he had published as short stories, but the others were, uh, three, of them, three of them were original. And there it was, you know, it was just on the page. All right, so let's get into the stories and the movie mm-hmm. itself, Creepshow. Uh, it opens up with a little boy named Billy, who is played by Stephen King's son, Joe. Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So he's played by the great, the, the very great uh, Tom Atkins plays the uh, asshole father. Right, right. He said, is there anything in there that you really like? And I said, I would love to play the guy that gets uh, eaten by the grass, that Jody guy out in the, out by, all by himself gets all weeded up and, <laughs> and dies. He said, oh, I'm really sorry, Tom, but I, that's already cast. Stephen King is going to play that. And I said, oh, shit. George said, would you do me a big favor, play the dad in the beginning and the end? It's not really one of the stories, but it ties the whole movie together. And I said, yeah, sure. That guy's awesome. And like, I don't care what anyone says. Halloween 3, it's bad, but it's bad good. And he's fucking dope in it. Right. But um, he plays the asshole dad. And he just doesn't want his kid reading this trash, as he says, these, right. these horror comics. And he's holding the the comic book of Creepshow in right. his in his hand which is always a cool little detail because they ended up i guess it became such a big deal in this thing and and it started a resurgence this movie started a resurgence back into those horror comics that they came back for a while Mm -hmm. and they actually made a comic book just like the one he's holding that came out at that time i remember going to the 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 walden's books at the time when i'd go to the mall because i frequented the mall a lot like a lot of 80s kids did yep and I would always go to that aisle and be like, oh, this is creepy. But my mom would never let me buy it. So. <laughs> Still had a little bit of a hold on you. Right, right, right. <laughs> so you can watch it, but you can't buy that shit on paperback. But uh, one thing we do need to talk about before we go any further is the mind of the man who wrote this script, Stephen King. See, I grew up uh, on a diet of, let's say, the sort of comic books that kids weren't really supposed to read, like Tales from the Crypt and uh, The Vault of Horror and that sort of thing. Uh, One of the earliest stories that I remember my mother reading, my my brother and I, was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So you see, I was was warped from an early age, but the idea that this sort of thing, you know, somebody will sort of want to discuss your books if you write what I write, and they'll sort of sidle up to you and say, by the way, what was your childhood like? <laughs> <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> but mine was perfectly normal as a, as a, you know, a general case. When I was a kid, I, I, there was a guy who, maybe the first of the modern serial killers, he was a, a guy named Charlie Starkweather. Right. 
Starkweather was in uh, Nebraska, right. okay. and uh, it was in the 50s. And I had a scrapbook. I cut out all these clippings of him. And my mother found this scrapbook. It was 57, so I would have been about 10 years old. And I think she decided right then and there that not all my wheels were on the road anymore. And she said, why, do you, why are you interested in this guy? And because I was only 10, and what articulation I had then went into the stories, and it really still does. I'm a much better writer than I am a talker. What I was not able to tell her was, there was one picture of this young man who killed these people, and what there was in his eyes was nothing at all. I mean, vacant rooms, depopulated planets, there was nothing. And what I was not able to tell her was, I need to look out for this guy. I need to know everything about him so that if I ever meet him or anybody like him, I can go around. And in my fiction, when I've created characters, some of the real bad guys, I'm telling myself, reminding myself, look out for these guys. These guys are dangerous and they're really out there. Yeah, I think, and for whatever in my head, I, I never really knew there was a, a real comic until much later in life. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, right. Not being much of a comic book kid myself. Right. But yeah, so the, the you know the, in the movie they go ahead they show Tom Atkins playing the father. He he's a very abusive. He kind of smacks the kid in the face. Which I mean I'm not gonna say my mom never smacked me in the face when I was just you know. Yeah, right. But uh, yeah, he goes out. He's he's a bit of a tough guy. He's even a tough guy with the the wife who's kind of just like maybe you're a little hard on him. And he's like shut up, bitch. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, he he doesn't. He's not that rough. But he does kind of. Uh, excuse her opinion. Mm -hmm. I took care of it. That's why God made fathers, babe. That's why God made fathers. And I always love that scene where he walks out the out of the front of the house. He throws the comic book in the trash can, and the front of it's facing up, so the camera's looking right down, down on it. On it There's yeah. that flash of the lightning when he does it. He's looking up, and then he walks back in. That's a really great one. Uh, Romero doesn't get a whole lot of uh, credit for for being um, very stylish. Right. And then if you watch a lot of his movies, he's not really... He, he, he gets a lot of coverage, and then he's really good at editing stuff together to right. make pacing well. Mm -hmm. But as far as style, if you watch his other movies before and after this, in my opinion, it, they're not super stylish. This right. movie, though, you can tell he was really like, I'm going to put my all into the style right. in this film. It's kind of like a pre-Sin City in the way that, you know, how Sin City kind of captivated everybody and said, oh, wow, it's like comics in motion. But if you watch right. Creepshow, there's, a, yeah. there's definitely a lot of detail from that. And uh, that's similar and, you know, way ahead of its time. Right. As, as far as, like you said, stylizing and, 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 and making it feel more like a comic book with its use of colors and, and, and framing of the shots and all that stuff. And, and then transference from out of animation, you know. Right. Yeah, he does a lot of those bright colors during really disturbing scenes. The mm -hmm. background gets very vibrant in color. These right. little wavy lines and, and stuff like that. He does a lot of canted angles, so that that's already discharging, putting you off kilter. Which the comics say all of those did that. If you read the comics, you realize, oh man, this is just like you know. I remember being as young as I was because I was a comic book kid and, and watching the movie and really connecting with it on that mm -hmm. level. Like man, this is like fucking flipping through a comic book. Right. All the animated scenes in between where they end a story and then they go to the Right. It's, it's all animated and stuff. I love that shit. Yeah. Loved it. Well, one of the first things that, that stood out to me, of course, as we've already um, mentioned in other shows, 
is when we get to Billy's bedroom and he pouting. He, yeah, he's sitting there pouting, and they they flash around his room, and he's got a right. bunch of shit hanging around. Right. And there's my Rodan toy. He's got my <laughs> my as I've mentioned in the like the giant monsters episode and some of the other ones. The, right. The exact Rodan toy that I had is hanging from strings from a ceiling, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I have that. You know. <laughs> Do you think you recognize it back then too, or? Oh yeah. Oh, I guarantee. Yeah. 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 No, I right off the bat. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that, that scene where you know he's sitting there, he's pouting the the lightning's going off outside so his room's getting these weird ominous flashes you know you see different parts of his room and then when he looks up you see this badass version of the creep right that's outside his window right it's basically like a deteriorated skeleton with eyes and all that stuff and like cloak over it in a way right and he's looking at him kind of like with this shit-eating grin and the kid smiles back (laughs) you know right yeah, apparently the whole, whole idea originally was to do this whole opening scene uh, live. Mm-hmm. So do it where the creep is in front of a back screen projection, and they shoot all the backplate stuff with a crane and then make it look like that Tom Savini's creep mm-hmm. is really floating down there. But mm. I guess they did the, the math on it and realized it was going to be way too costly. And so they went with the animation, which I, I think it ties the film. It together. sets the tone for the yeah. rest of the movie, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what's cool. He uses it right there, in between going from story to story, and right. then at the end, after that, that little bookend thing ends, it goes back to cartoon. But it, it's not all wall-to-wall cartoon, which right. is a mistake that they they end up making a little later, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Yeah. 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 So uh, that leads us into the first story then, pretty much, yeah? Right. Happy Father's Day. Right, right. Which, uh, you know, I can kind of remember, you know, the the, uh, the quote, the famous quote of the story, which we'll get into in a minute, uh, just kind of being a, a popular one on the school bus. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know? Oh, really? Yeah. But it's basically, obviously, it starts off in a, uh, a mansion. You can tell it's a, a well-to-do family, and they're all right. that, that kind of aristocratic kind of douchebaggy right. people that everybody hates each other. Right. And then you got the one dope that's Ed Harris. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of either, I think he's married into the family. Yeah, right. Yeah, yes, okay. he is. And he's uh, kind of doing his own thing and, and kind of looking around like, what a bunch of assholes. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the effeminate brother of, of the wife, his yeah. wife, is, is basically, keeps calling him a hick and all that stuff. You right. Know? right. So right. he obviously is considered low class. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And I don't know why, because once he starts cutting a rug, you can really see where his class comes from. <laughs> With those tight pants on. He's got that sweet comb over. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um. The, the woman that's in that scene, the older woman that's mm-hmm. waiting, I guess, for her S- sister, Bedelia. Bedelia, yeah. Yeah, Bedelia, yes, yes. Uh, but she's telling a story. She always had this voice. She used to be on uh, <laughs> She used to be on The Guiding Light. And the only reason I know this, my mom used to watch soap operas. Oh, and I remember really? after seeing this movie and watching, you know, sitting through one of those soap operas uh, that my mom was watching, I remember thinking, oh, that's that chick that got her <laughs> head ripped off and yeah. a cake made out of it. Right. But she has that voice that when she starts telling the story of mm-hmm. what happened and everything, they keep going back and forth. She's kind of narrating a bit of the story as they go into the history of this, their evil father who mm-hmm. was like kind of a not so nice person and, and uh, sister 
Bedelia and her whole issues with him. And basically, the father, it's, it's implied, isn't it, that the father had Bedelia's husband killed. Yeah, and... Um, and Bedelia knows it. And she right. already hates him. Right. She already hates him. And and he's the old man in the in the in the flashbacks is basically repeating himself over and over again, you know. It's Father's Day. Where's my king? You promised me my king. You're just like all the others. You're nothing but a Exactly. He's very Scrooge McDuck without the accent. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, after Bedelia pretty much knows that this her father had her I guess the love of her life maybe killed, mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. she just can't take it. Right. And she grabs this really unique looking ashtray that She's... looks like it's made out of like marble or something. Right. Uh she loses her shit, picks up that marble piece you were talking about that ashtray or whatever it is and just right. what smacks him across the, the temple and he falls to his to the floor and uh, basically dies yeah. <laughs> yeah. his head's cracked in right and I guess and I didn't even know this there's a very uh, cool documentary about the making of this that was put on more recent uh dvd releases and blu-ray releases of mm-hmm. creep show and tom savini and george romero are on there interviewed about it and george romero basically says that that ashtray is in every single one of the stories oh it really up. and if you look for it you can find it in every oh. single one of the stories well, that's funny so that's a, that a cool little thing yeah they're waiting for Bedelia to arrive as they were, as the her sister was telling this story to the nieces and nephews and sons and daughters or whoever they are. You know, there's right. only like four, uh, three others there. You know, and uh, she's they they keep flashing to Bedelia on her way being late, and she's in this Rolls Royce, and she's right. obviously drinking and driving the cars all over the place. And right, and that's again that's those shots where they're showing her in the car. There's there's they're framed by the comic book style outline mm-hmm. of like this panel to this panel to that panel I, right God with the brooms and the, yeah, 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 yeah right yeah we decided to try to do all these opticals and you know to make it more comic booky mm-hmm. um the frames around things and all that that those that jagged frame and, and it's just like in a comic book when i remember reading those comic books yeah. and it would be silly. The crypt keeper would say silly sayings well, and all yeah. that, but the story was the story. She shows up at the house, but she doesn't go in right away, Bedelia, and she right. goes straight to the to the family plots in the back. There's graveyards behind the mansion, and uh, right, she sits down with her open bottle of whatever it is, JD or something, and and uh, she starts basically. Lamenting. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Talking yeah. to her dead father, you know, at, yeah. at the foot of it, his grave. I, I'm, t- I'm guessing it's Father's Day. That's why they're all. Yeah, that's right. Together. That's why they're okay, gathering. Right? Yes, yes. Okay. You're, you're right. You're right. Which is weird why the whole family is getting together on Father's Day when there's no father in sight. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like a tradition. She comes out every right. year and uh, so. To celebrate the death of this person she hates. Right. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So she's sitting there by the grave of her dead father and lamenting about. I want my cake. 
being a kid and after I saw it a few times remembering that man once he drops that whiskey bottle and it pours out shit's going down (laughs) boom dad's hand comes out of the grave oh man that got me I remember watching it as a kid and that got me because the way they do it she's in focus and the foreground right next to her is in focus too. I'm pretty sure it's called a diopter shot. Right. Brian De Palma uses a ton where the person in the front ground really close close up in the mm-hmm. foreground is in focus and then the back is in focus. Yeah, and there's and so, a, there's like a weird haze that always kind right. of comes around the two as they Right. Right. Yeah. And so she's lamenting and then that hand when that hand comes up, the music starts. Mm-hmm. The corpse of her father basically get come crawls out of the grave. Yes, gets on right. top of her, strangles her. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's him in this really gravelly, like hardly any vocal cords left. Like Petelia. Yeah, Petelia. Yeah. And I, I mean. I'm betting that Creepshow might be my first time ever seeing as what is interpreted as a zombie. Mm-hmm. I because I hadn't up to that point I hadn't ever I I, I hadn't uh, seen um, uh, Return of the Living Dead or right. Night of the Living Dead or Day of the Dead or Dawn of the Dead, and those are the big ones yeah. around that time. So this might be, which is weird because it's still George Romero that's showing me my first yeah. zombie. <laughs> right, but yeah, right. And yet he's way more um, gruesome than all the typical Romero zombies. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you watch you watch Day of the Dead, which is made after this movie. They're not really, in my opinion, like super scary looking zombies. No. You know? It's just people. They always with a had lot the dark makeup. circles. Yeah. yeah you know yeah, that kind right. of thing. That kind of zombie and stuff. But this zombie is like that's that's the zombies. Like when I see him, I'm like, oh Jesus, that's fucked. Yeah. Right, because it's basically like uh, you can tell he's wearing a suit, but you can barely right. tell. It's covered in mud and dirt and grime, but right. his face is essentially a skull with a little bit of rotted flesh on it. You know. Right. But it's yeah. kind of it's it's a, it's a it, it, because of the time. I think it's a it's a little bit thick because it's built out right around an actor's uh, frame. I face. guess. Face. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, for sure. And they put they put the worms on the eyes and stuff. Right. 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 Plus, we shouldn't go any further without mentioning Tom Savini's contribution to this film. His Uh special effects makeup work is so brilliant, and he did such a great job in this. He's, of course, been attached to tons of Romero projects, and then, of course, the Friday the 13th projects and stuff like that. Uh But his work in this is great. This is back when he was a rock star, too. Him, Rob Bottin, and Rick Baker. Right. It was almost automatic that I would call Tom Savini for this because there was a whole string of films that I made there, and Tom was the guy. He was the effects guy. He was the guy that I wanted to work with. We were friends. We remained friends. And... And I, you know, I just gave him a call and said, here's the, here's the list of things that you have to do. Now, to get into a little bit of the budget, since we're already on special effects anyway, Tom yeah. Savini had to work on a, on a budget that was pretty tight. I mean, it was, it was the biggest budget so far that uh, 
that George Romero had had for a film. Uh-huh. But I guess when, when George Romero and Stephen King went to the company to try to get this made, they initially asked for, I think, 10 to $12 million is what the story is. Right. Uh, the company only wanted to give them six. They kind of went with it, even though that they knew it was going to be really tight. Uh, once they got into everything that they needed for all of the different uh, shorts that was going to be in the movie and really budgeted it out, they went back and they basically said, there's no way we're going to be able to do this on $6 million. Can we at least get a little bit more? Right. And I think they said that the final budget was somewhere around $8 million or something like that on this, which is great. When you're looking to it, the money is right up there on the screen, and a lot of that is brought by Tom Savini's beautiful work. Yep. All the effects in Creepshow, all five of those movies were done by me and a 17-year-old kid. That was it. You know, today I would have a crew of like 12 people, you know, but it, that, that was the fun. It was me and this kid inventing how to do all this stuff, you know. And it's, you know, good old-fashioned practical effects that right. we don't see too often anymore, you know. Right. But, and and this, this is the heyday, you know, the early 80s. It's, it's oh, yeah. the heyday of practical effects. Oh, yeah, absolutely, totally, yeah. So I think um, as far as the story goes, uh, Ed Harris works his way out the front of the mansion at some point and um, notices Bedelia's car is there with the door open. Right. And starts following his way around to that same area the um the graveyard and uh by this time it's a little darker There's yeah that mood yeah. lighting coming in right the sun had set pretty much right and... he picks up the bottle he starts taking a swig oh that's right yes and yes. from where the the zombie father has basically come out of the grave the ground is sunk in ground is su super soft so he, his foot hits it he falls back and his head's like inches away from hitting the gravestone right right and then on the gravestone, which is this is what I'm talking about when it, when I'm talking about stylistic directing is we're looking at Ed Harris's face from the front of him, right? And he's laying down, mm -hmm. and so the gravestone is behind his head, and then the shadow starts appearing on that gravestone, so you know there's someone in front of him right. coming up. That's yep. all really well staged stuff, yeah. really good stuff. But it's it's this hyper realism of. Um, like uh, there were, were comics back in the 50s called The Vault of Horror, mm -hmm. and they did really weird stylistic mood lighting like this stuff that was, you know, shadows that are cast in ways that probably aren't practical in real life, mm -hmm. but they look really cool, you know? Yeah, right. The, uh, the headstone, uh, the upper part of it, is inching forward off of its yeah. perch towards every, t every time Ed Harris starts to move to get out of the pit. Right. And he's freaking out. And he sees this zombie in front of him. And I guess yeah. the zombie, like, telepathically? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Right, it. because I kept thinking, you know, what's behind this pushing it if the zombie's <laughs> right. in front of it? But Right. And the zombie's got his hand out like he's, like, Jedi forcing this thing yeah, to right, kind of right. move forward. And so. eventually it, it comes off its perch and crushes at Paris. <laughs> Right, and he lets out this weird that that whimper he lets out right before it crushes his head has always stayed in my head. I always say, ah! like, <laughs> yeah. So that's it for him. And so we go back to the inside the man inside the mansion, and now Ed's wife, the character that he was dancing with, <laughs> is nervous, starting to get scared. Where the heck is he, and all that stuff, and. Right. She's asking her brother to go look for him, and um, he's like, "Fuck that! He's your hick," you know. Yeah. And, and, and he's uh, kind of an alky. They're 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 showing that he's 
gone through like three bottles or something of champagne already. Right, right, right. He's kind of turning them upside down in the thing of ice and and everything. So I think what, the, we, what we didn't mention though is in the um, in the flashbacks of Bedelia killing her father was there was a maid involved. Yeah, and um, she knew all about it, and she helped. I guess cover up the whole thing and clean everything up. Right. Uh, I mean, at the very least, she just didn't say anything, but right. she had to help a little. <laughs> so that means he has an axe to grind with her. <laughs> right. And um, so, uh, yeah, the um, uh, Bedelia's sister, who had been telling about the flashbacks and informing her family, she decides to get up and look for her sister or Ed Harris and all that stuff and, and heads into the kitchen. Right. And uh, as she gets in, she notices uh, muddy footprints in the kitchen. Right. right. What the heck? Yeah, exactly. And she's a little concerned. <laughs> and uh, then as she steps into the kitchen and the, the door, I think a door or something shuts it. There's a pantry door with a window in it. The maid falls into it. And right. you see that she's dead. She's dead, right. Right. And when she turns, boom. The father zombie is there, and he basically twists her head around on into her shoulders. Yeah. And that it cuts away from that. It basically shows yeah. her head backwards on her on her shoulders and cuts right. away. That's yeah. a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's when the sister, the the niece or whatever, right, gets nervous and talks to her brother about getting up and looking for Ed Harris. Right. Where is she? And where the hell is Hank? Right, yeah. I think his name is Richard. Yeah. I'm Richard. pretty sure because she, she says it in a real white. Go see Richard. Please. Please. Look, my darling sister. He is your hair. Husband, I mean. You go look for him. Richard, I'm scared and it's dark out there. But he wants he wants her to go with him. Come on. And right as they get to the kitchen door to go in the the swinging kitchen door, um, all of a <laughs> sudden the zombie dad pops through. Father's I got my cake. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> pops are holding the. What should be his cake, but is really like whipped cream on top of the older woman's that he just ripped her head off. Her, yeah. And her head's on this big silver platter and candles on it and stuff. Right. <laughs> and it's the, the woman's. The woman's mouth is all you know. The head on the pel on the platter basically. It's right. She's all wide eyed with her mouth open and the frosting <laughs> dripping down her hair and the, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. And then they do the. They go. I think they flash back to the the two younger yeah. brother and sister and they do that. The color shot, where yep. it's like the the dark bright blue behind their heads, and right. they're they're both like stuck in a like a comic book freeze frame of of fear and right. Yeah. And that stuff is just. I mean, no one did that before this. No, like, you know, not not that comic book movies at this time and period were a huge thing. Aside from Superman, no right. nothing else was doing this. But even Superman isn't shot exactly like a comic book panel. Now these effects were done with theatrical scrims. Those lightning effects behind the heads and everything, we had scrims with solid black shapes in them. And between them was basically a gauze. And we would shine a red light through it. And when you turned the light on, you saw the effect. 
And so this was like super unique at the time. Right. Like really interesting visuals no one was seeing before. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's the end of that segment. We go into the little animated riff. It takes us from that panel, and then the, the I think the wind blows, and the few pages go by, and then we get into the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. Right, right. But yeah, Stephen King is in this. This was, I believe, his first ever kind of acting gig. Right, yeah. And it's and not bad. He's, he's It's not. Here's it's the meant thing. to be super hyper-realized, right. and it's... Right. Campy and silly, and he's right. playing a bumpkin, essentially. He's playing right. like a, uh, a low-IQ um, right. bumpkin who lives in a house by himself, you know, on, a, right. on an open field out in the we- middle of nowhere. Right. I don't think Steve to this day has forgiven me because my only direction to him was play it like the Roadrunner in the Warner Brothers cartoons. I mean, just go way out into left field with it exaggerated as much as you want and of course critics came back and said well this is not a very subtle performance and it's not supposed to be i mean it's supposed to be a cartoon it basically is a cartoon and you know when so when steve does all that oh my god i mean it's just it's great you know and um i kind of remember though as a kid watching it think this was my least favorite story and i don't really feel that way more as an adult i guess i just kind of see the humor in it more now i think it's because there wasn't really any crazy monsters or weird stuff going on you know right i i I was exact opposite i loved it because he was so out there and looney tunes kind of with it his over the top perform performance and stuff like that and i found this one kind of I don't know. It it, it it bugged me in a way how th- there was this unstoppable thing that was on his body mm-hmm. and he couldn't do anything it's, about it. Yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah. Right. And I remember being a kid and thinking, oh, that's horrible and stuff. And then one of the scenes that bothered me the most, you and I have talked about this off transmission, but uh, it's that scene where he's going back. He's touched the meteor. So basically right. a meteor lands on his property. Yeah. Right. He runs up to it, sees it's a meteor, gets all excited about it. Jordy Verrill is, a.k.a. Stephen King. That's a meteor. I'd be dipped in shit if that ain't a meteor. He gets all excited about it, has these visions of... <laughs> Selling oh. it to the, yeah, to the college. <laughs> I wonder how much they'd pay for it up the college. And those cutaways of his visions of what how he's going to sell it and everything is just awesome yeah it's just awesome because it is kind of like a cartoon it's just like what count out of cent less than 200 my meteor my price <laughs> yeah right you know he's he's going really big and lavish kind of sort of like like uh nicholson does in in the shining shining right yeah right hi lloyd a little slow tonight isn't it <laughs> uh, no, I was just gonna say that I, I think his next step is he, he's like I gotta cool it down first, and uh, right because oh, he goes to touch it and it's super hot and he burns right. his fingers. That's the part I was I was about to talk about though is when he go when he touches it and he burns his fingers he goes back he fills up a bucket full of water while he's filling that bucket up full of water like everyone does when they burn their finger or something and they put it in their mouth like, yeah they're oh, sucking on it to pull the right. heat out right well yeah. what, and the, that scene and he pulls his fingers out of his mouth and they do a close up of his fingers they've got these like little sores blisters blisters like little yeah. tiny pimple sized blisters all over his fingers and, his and yeah. 
ugh, that part, I don't know why. <laughs> it really... And he keeps doing it. Like, he keeps putting yeah, him keeps back putting in, his them in his mouth. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. And I remember being a kid, like, those things are gonna pop in his mouth. That's gross. And he throws a bucket of water on it, and it... You know, all the steam comes off of it and all that stuff, and the thing just splits down the middle and breaks in two halves. <laughs> yeah. And then it's, like, glowing glowing this purple shit inside right and when, uh, once he splits the meteor in half he goes into one of those visions again of going back to that college and talking to that same guy who's going to offer him astronomical prices of like two hundred dollars yeah uh, he he he's not as generous this time right right you must be joking i wouldn't give you two cents and then when it cuts back to him, he's he he's picking up the pieces to put in the bucket that he has there that had the water in it, and the juice that fell out of it once it split open is on his hand, so he's wiping it on his right, 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 right on his clothes overalls. And he goes meteor ship. That's another one of those lines that I think traveled around the school bus quite a bit. It's one of those things that there's two words you wouldn't imagine ever hearing. <laughs> yeah, hearing together. Together, yeah. Meteor and then shit. you hear it, and it's fucking hilarious. Especially the way he says it. The way he he overemphasizes his his country accent. Yeah, that, that, that and, and the other line that's very popular from this one is... Uh, oh, you done it now, Jordy Farrell, you monkhead. He says it like once or twice, I believe, you know, because yeah. he's upset that he ruined his chances of making $200. Yeah. It, and we still say it to each other yeah. all the time. All the time. Yep. He has the two halves of the uh, meteor in a bucket, and he leaves them at right. his doorstep outside his, his, his wreck of a cat house. Right. Goes inside and drowns his sorrows with a, a bottle of Ripple. <laughs> Oh god! Yeah, and he's like going back and forth on on switching channels. He's going to from like isn't right. there like some religious dude on there, which is a total Stephen King thing. He always got to have something about you know this over the top religion thing going. Right? On. Yeah, as a preacher, uh, right? Like a evangelist talking to the right. camera, and he watches that for a bit, and then he yeah. turns to what should be the staple of country bumpkins, which is wrestling. Yeah, wrestling. <laughs> that's right. Right. <laughs> And he's licking his fingers again. Yep. And that's when he pulls him out and he notices little green strands growing out of he's him. Playing and he goes, around with the, it, yeah. you know. Yeah, he's playing with it. And then he, it hits him. He's been sucking on his fingers. Goes to the bathroom and he's looking at his tongue, and his tongue has green shit on the end of his tongue. And uh, well, let's not forget the daydreams that he had with the one guy that was basically playing. The guy from the college who was going to buy his meteor, right, right, or halves of his meteor in the latter one, uh, ends up in another daydream playing a doctor who, right, Jordy Verrill's going to the doctor now to show him his fingers of where he touched this meteor. And the doctor's basically saying he's going to have to amputate his fingers, which is hilarious. It's a great scene. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Verrill. But doesn't he head? He heads into the the kitchen next, and he just panicking, trying to calm his nerves. He makes himself this giant pitcher, right? This full of uh, orange juice and vodka. Vodka, yeah. right? By a screwdriver, right? right? Right. Yep. And he's ah, needed that kind of thing, <laughs> right? So yeah, he's starting to find a little bit of comfort in this uh, screwdriver, this giant screwdriver he's made. He sits back down, starts watching TV, and lo and behold, the preacher's on. And this time, 
he decides to watch it because he's in he's in a crisis. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> he's trying to find his salvation. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I'm growing. We flash outside and we do this montage, basically showing everywhere that the meteors come in contact with, the green shit is just completely taking over the whole land of his, his property there. And by the time we get back inside, he's fallen asleep watching TV and the stuff has completely overtaken his face now, which is really funny, and his hands. Yeah, he has like a beard of the green shit. And, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he starts to panic, of course, and uh, trying to ascertain the situation. <laughs> and uh, what's he going to do kind of thing. And he's ta- I think the itchy part comes along, right? <laughs> right yeah, that thick Jordy Verilax, and he says... Dory, don't it itch? Yeah, <laughs> right. That's what I texted you the other night. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> One of the more interesting things, though, that is told in the making of Creep Show is how hard of a time Tom Savini had with this particular segment. Everything has always worked in every movie I've ever done, except anything we tried on Stephen King. We had a tongue that grew plants, we couldn't get that to work. We had a hand that grew plants, that wouldn't work. We had green lenses that he was fitted for that we could not get in his eyeballs. His reflexes were too, we could, he could not relax enough for us to get the green eyeballs in. So nothing we did to Stephen King except blow his head off. But that was my assistant. So I think we move a little further into the night next. And he's back in the bathroom again. Right, yeah. And uh, he starts to fill the bathtub because of the itches so bad. <laughs> and as he's doing that, a vision of his father comes into the mirror and start, you know... Preaching to him. You ain't gonna get in that tub, are you? Stop water there at once, Jordy. Don't you know? You get in that water, Jordy. The water is what's making this shit grow. Right, right. And his father's basically warning him, cursing him, as you said, kind of. (laughs) And Jordy takes this moment to reflect, and you see that he kind of gets it, but realizes his time's kind of up. I'm a goner already, Daddy. Ain't I? Got the stuff out of that meteor on me, and I'm gone. So he sits there staring into the water with great background music by John Harrison again. It's just so amazing, his music in this. But it's this eerie kind of hallucination, this really atmospheric music. Love it. He's staring at the water, hypnotized by it, and then just, boom, jumps in. Ah! They flip to the next morning, and that stuff is everywhere. everywhere. Like, the roof is covered. Yeah, he was right. He's a gunner. Yeah. (laughs) But he, uh, basically, it's everywhere. Yeah. And he is actually covered head to toe. Right. But you eventually hear him talking, and he has that weird voice that... that, Yeah, his 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 throat's all gurgly. Right. Well, what what probably happened is the, the, the shit went down his esophagus as well. And that's why his vocal cords are all messed up. But um, basically you see this poor little Chia guy 
moving towards an object and, and yeah. pleading for, I guess, some luck. Yeah. And, and that object, of course, is a shotgun. And then he puts the thing to what would be his mouth, pulls the trigger, and the top of the his what would be his head is just right. big bunch of moss flies off in the, and yep. he slumps back into the corner and it turns to an animated comic book and that's the end of that one and right. we start flipping through the pages again right now before we move on to our next story i thought it would be a great time to veer off into one of tim's phobia stories tim take it away When I saw this movie for the first time, uh, I had lived in uh, Hudson Valley area of New York, as I've mentioned a bunch of times, and um, there's bugs and stuff up there, but there's not really cockroaches. 1985 comes along, and and my family moves to Tucson, Arizona, and uh, not really knowing the town very well. We had relatives that lived there, but... We were trying to be close to the school they thought I was going to go to, the, t- the junior high. I was about to start seventh grade, and um, we moved into this apartment behind the Home Depot, again on Cole Road, but down further at Broadway. That's when the, my first exposure to cockroaches began. And that apartment was infested. It was disgusting. And I never had to deal with anything like this before. And it was like one of those things where, you know, I'd be a kid watching TV in my room and uh, I'd want to go out and get a snack and I'd go to the kitchen and turn the light on and five or six different things would scurry away. And it started, it started to build this fear into me. And then they just started, ended up being everywhere. At one point we had to get a hotel and have the apartment bombed. And I know we stayed in a hotel for like one night, and it only lasted like a a few months or something like that. So to this very day, I have a a very permanent fear of cockroaches. I cannot stand them. On to the next story, which is something to tide you over. Right. Now, I know that you have a phobia of one of the stories that comes up later on in the anthology of this first movie, Creepshow. This one has one for me. I'm not a big claustrophobic guy. I don't really get claustrophobic during a lot of stuff, but that being buried and and mobilized, (laughs) that terrifies me. And watching this, it just always has freaked me out. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Having that... that, Like with the weight. Yeah, the sand and the weight. Basically... Keeping you immobile. You're right. It's terrifying. Being buried alive is a terrifying thought. And so, I mean, okay, back in the day, I remember seeing documentaries on it and reading stuff on, back in the 18th, 19th century, the cholera epidemic that broke out. People were being misdiagnosed and buried alive. And, of course, they didn't have the medical Medical technology. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People would be in comas. Yeah. And pronounced dead. Right, yeah. That's awful. Yeah. And reading about that, you find out that it became such a big deal that they had to start making coffins that the string would go down in and attach to, like, the corpse's finger. Yep. And so if they were buried alive, there would be a the string that went up to a bell above the grave so they could ring it and let yeah, them know. Yeah, if, if the bell was started ringing... 
the grave digger or whatever would have to come and dig out the person. Yeah, right. It's awful. Oh man, it's kind of like in Kill Bill when she gets buried alive. Yeah. But um, anyway, so this story, something to tide you over, carries a lot of anxiety for me because of that being buried while you're alive kind of thing. But this stars uh, Leslie Nielsen. Great in this. Leslie Nielsen was the greatest guy. I mean, he was just the most fun on the set. I mean, he's a jokester, basically. Yet, I think he is a wonderful actor. I mean, if you look at the range of his performance in in something that tied you over, he, it's almost Shakespearean. I mean, the guy could play Shakespeare and probably has. I don't know everything that he's done, but he's a wonderful actor. And the very thick-haired Ted Danson. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, man. When it was still real. <laughs> right. <laughs> and not hair plugs. All right. Uh, it's funny, when we first showed him, we went to L.A. and showed the first cut of Creep Show, and Ted came, and we went out for drinks afterward, and he said, you know, I got this TV show. It's about these people in a bar. I don't know if it's going to succeed. It's, it seems like, I don't know, it just he, he wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't certain about it, and, of course, that became Cheers. But, uh, okay, so basically the summary of the story is is we open inside uh, Ted Danson, uh, his apartment. He plays Harry, Leslie Nielsen plays Richard, and then Leslie Nielsen's wife is Becky. There's a love triangle thing going on here. Basically, Ted Danson's character Harry is having an affair with Richard, Leslie Nielsen's wife, Becky. And so uh, Leslie Nielsen's character shows up at Ted Danson's apartment and confronts him about it. <laughs> but uh, basically Ted Danson uh, gets a knock at the door. Someone's calling his name. He opens the door. It's Leslie Nielsen on the other side and kind of forces his foot in through the door. The chain's on the door, but uh, Ted Danson is still kind of keeping him at bay. But... Leslie Nielsen's character is very forceful and confronting him basically saying he knows that he's sleeping with his wife Ted Dance is playing dumb at first but then doesn't but his foot's still kind of cramming in the door trying to keep it open for, for some Ted reason. Ted Danson says this really stupid thing he goes That may work on TV mister but I can bench press 300 pounds you better get your foot out of the door you're going to lose about half of it So Richard uh, Leslie Nielsen uh, talks his way into the apartment. Uh, Harry, who is Ted Danson, uh, starts listening to him and basically fesses up to the affair that they're having. Basically says, we were going to tell you, so now it's out in the open, so now we can get over it. You won't have to worry about any alimony or anything like that. She just wants to get away. And the plot thickens. Yeah. But Leslie Nielsen is basically alluding to something bad happening to his wife, Becky, and that Ted Danson's character better listen up while and he talks. All the while, while messing with his home video equipment. Right. He's like TV. playing with the cables and the TV, and he uh, yeah. keeps in between telling, you know... What's going on, like... The, the... Uh, about what he knows, he's also saying, you got some great equipment here, and, you know, it's just really random shit. Yeah. So what I gathered from all this is he's a, he's a mogul, and he's probably a, like a... Uh, Leslie Nielsen. Something to the effect of, uh, uh, like, owns TV uh, appliance stores or something like that, you right. know? Because yeah. he knows all about audio-video stuff, and, and uh, right? Yeah, right, yeah. And he's wealthy, 
that, yes. that gets developed as you know as we know it right yeah so leslie nielsen is a very wealthy person over some business that makes sense what you're saying though for sure that he must be in like electronics or something like that because he's messing with ted danson's uh, big tube tv and and uh, vcr that's the size of a freaking like the biggest luggage you can find if you're going on a trip for a month to europe <laughs> and he keeps commenting on how nice his equipment is and i'm like oh god that's a garbage tv <laughs> Right. Um, so Leslie Nielsen uh, then pulls out a, a tiny little uh, tape recorder and starts playing this tape, which has his wife Becky on it, screaming for help from uh, f- for Ted Danson's character to help her. So this indeed shows that uh, Leslie Nielsen's character has Becky in peril and that Ted, if he wants to be with her again, he needs to listen and do what Leslie Nielsen says or he's never going to see him again. That's the threat anyway from Leslie Nielsen. Right. You talk to me, you son of a bitch, I'm gonna kill you. You kill me and you'll never find out. Now don't get naughty, Harry. If I fall down on this floor and hit my head on that hard marble, I could fracture my skull. That would be fine with me. Yeah, and then you'll never know. And believe me, Mr. True Love, you want to know. Because by 11 this morning, it's gonna be too late. And let's just say this. Leslie Nielsen is great in this short. He has uh, moments of levity, but he's also very serious. And this, to put it in context, comes at a time in his career where he's not the naked gun guy. He's, he's coming off of more serious work than he is uh, uh, comedies. So, yeah. It was that transition. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. And, and like I said, he has moments of levity in this, but then... Uh, but, he's, it, but he gets serious when he needs to. Right. Exactly. And that's the brilliance of, of, of him. Yeah, so, yeah, they've, the next scene is basically them driving on the, on the, uh, in the Jeep together. And uh, as they pull up onto the beach, they pass this home along the way, which is a really cool shot. It's his house, too. It's, it, it, um, oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. They drive right past his house. There's this big giant house on the beach and you could tell it's animated it's not like a real house yeah yeah it's a matte painting it's yeah, a yeah, matte yeah. painting right but they drive past it and, and to the beach right where the waves are crashing essentially and um yeah there's a big mound of sand yeah and uh, yeah it's right near where the tide comes in and the, the mound of sand looks like the length of a body right like she's buried under it exactly and so leslie nielsen tells ted danson's character hey that might be her and Ted Danson goes running towards the mound thinking it's she's buried under the sand. But when he gets there, on the opposite side of how the sand is laid out, there's a big hole there. And by the time Ted Danson turns around, he's about to do something, he realizes that uh, he has uh, Leslie Nielsen has a gun on him. And he's basically saying, you need to get in the hole. And Ted Danson's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I do what I told you doesn't shoot him he shoots adam to threaten him and he gets all freaked out and jumps in yeah ted danson does yep when they're when they're when ted danson is standing in the pit and he starts screaming for help right and uh, oh yeah, yeah leslie nielsen basically says yell all you want harry comfort point is very private i own it all and then he tells him to get on his knees and start burying himself start sucking <laughs> 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 no. Yeah. No. Uh, so basically, Leslie Nielsen's telling him, Ted Danson, bury yourself while I have the gun on you. And then once he gets enough of sand in, Leslie yep. Nielsen continues to finish the job. And then he makes him give him a blowjob. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> no. the old push up style. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, so he gets him up to his neck, and then he he basically is. Oh God, that's just so awful. Just it's, thinking about it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, apparently, how they did it was they had a little trap door that opened and closed mm-hmm. right over Ted Danson's neck, and it had the little place for him to put his neck through, and then they just covered it with sand, so he wasn't completely actually covered. buried. But, yeah. Yeah, but they said by the time they put all the sand on it to cover up the door and everything, you couldn't really lift the door. No, it was too like heavy. I'm sure. Right. So he's kind of basically stuck. Stuck yeah. in this thing. And they said he was a fucking trooper with it, too. I, w- I don't know if I would have been. I don't know if I could have done that. That's right. just awful. Because yeah. the scene that comes right after this is where he Ugh. Leslie Nielsen gets down on Ted Danson's level and uh, right. basically starts to threaten him in a way. And, and he said, you were going to see her, you know, let me see her and all that stuff. He's like, I could bury you right now. And he takes a pile of sand oh. and shoves it in Ted Danson's face. And he must have really done it because... yeah. When he he says, but I'm not gonna do that, and he starts to pull right. it away. He's like, that's and too smack e-. his face. <laughs> yeah, he's like, that's too easy, and he smacks his face to get the sand off. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. there's a yeah. part in there I noticed, like um, if you look at Ted Danson's inner ear, there's a huge mound of sand in his uh, inner ear, and that would have drove me bananas. That's right. just the feeling, because because you know, <laughs> even after they, then the, yeah. when the screen flips, you know, the next cut, it's gone. Right. So they came and cleaned them out, but you know, right. there's still tiny pieces of granules of sand in his ear and it's just like yeah ah. anyway yeah we we see we see this pov of uh ted danson view looking out at the beach where the water's eye level and the tide's slowly coming in not to his face or anything yet but it's pretty intimidating I, this this story really bugged me as a kid i remember but anyway we're, we're flipping we're transitioning they kind of do like a fade to flip the show the passage of time right yeah we're flipping the page in the comic book and next thing we know leslie nielsen who has left ted danson is coming back now and ted danson is kind of asleep i think uh let's see leslie nielsen's character is coming back in his jeep from the house up on the hill his house and he has from the behind this a cable, spool. a reel of cable on a spool in the back of the jeep, and he's letting all this stuff out. Right. And, uh, yeah. He's setting up a, 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 a one a video camera on a tripod, and uh, then he sets up a TV in front of him. Right. With a little VCR in the background, like right. an old timey VCR. Right, right. And he's setting all this stuff up. Basically, once he turns on the TV to show Ted Danson, it's he's showing Ted Danson that he he being leslie nielsen has his wife in the very same predicament ted danson is in somewhere but it's somewhere else right. it's not close by exactly right and probably uh, down the beach a right, bit. <laughs> right 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 well, and not in uh, uh hearing distance earshot there you go yeah. becky that great video I love this stuff. Now, just look at the quality of that picture, Harry. And he said, you know, he says, the VCR back here, right. this is a live feed of her right now. It's for me to record her live feed so I can watch what happens to you right. guys kind of thing, because the tide's coming in kind of thing, basically. Right. You are insane. I promised that you'd see Becky again. I kept my promise. Is that insane? He seems very pleased with himself. Right, right. And that, that glee that Leslie Nielsen has in, in character, even in scenes where he's not with another actor, he's humming or he's mostly whistling. And he's yeah. whistling that one tune. Camp Town Lady. Right, or Camp Town Races, something like that. The Camp Town Lady. <laughs> 
But yeah, he's doing that just during filming, just to fill the void of, hey, I'm happy, I'm having a pleasant time. But John Harrison, who did this awesome score that I love, incorporates it in the score. Oh, okay. And I don't think can, I ever noticed you that. You can hear it in the score that it is it, it, patched in here in little places, but a real creepy version of the score. Right, right. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen has a dark little monologue there about holding your breath. You know how hard your heart is beating here? How fast? Now that's going to make it harder for you to hold your breath, isn't it? Oh, the tide. Coming in. And then Leslie Nielsen leaves Ted Danson there, gets back in his Jeep and drives to his little house on the hill. Like you said, he's giddy and happy and singing little songs and right. stuff like that and pretty pleased with himself. And uh, he has like this real fancy house where with a, behind it, this painting automatically <laughs> goes up and there's <laughs> like all the these cameras. Cave, yeah. yeah, exactly. There's all these TV monitors. Right. And you know, really bad, low definition, <laughs> black and white. <laughs> But right. but back in 82, people were looking at that and going, wow, never in a million years will that be real. This guy's rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he flips two of the monitors to the two cameras he has on, one his wife and one on Ted Danson. And right. Basically, and the, and the, the tide, the, at this point, the water is starting to hit them in the face. Right. And he's very pleased and he turns it off yeah the great thing about that is he's watching them and he's you can tell yeah like you said he's very pleased and he keeps watching him and the water keeps hitting him and starting to hit him more and more and more ted danson's looking at the camera and saying you know, you know cursing him or whatever and they have a scene where leslie nielsen turns off the monitors and then he's having a drink of whatever right you know some kind of alcohol and he has this smile on his face that slowly fades as fades if away he's right. like maybe like maybe there's a tiny touch of empathy there, you know, like yeah. Maybe and then he it, a, boom, it's gone. It's, it's gone. gone, right? It's right. a great little quirk that he adds to that, that. Right. Yeah. And then they cut to this picture of Ted Danson completely submerged in water. Oh, right, right, right. And he's like struggling for breath and and, and all of that stuff. And there these little air bubbles are coming out of his mouth. Right. And there's, and there's that the back hue, this red hue kind hue of comes up comic book like oh my gosh kind of lines coming up. Right. And and it's it's maybe like I don't know, a 5 second scene or anything. But, but it's really weird cuz his hair is like right, yeah, floating it's, it's way floating out and more, yeah. yeah, and he's, he's all wide-eyed and like yeah. trying to hold his breath and there's like bubbles coming out of his nose. And, right. And it's almost like the like the sun is behind his head. It, right. It, it's like bright yellow and it fades to a like a reddish you. Right, yeah. Savini said that, you know, that was done in a course in the tank. They had a little rubber suit thing that Ted would put his head up through it, and then they had sand on the bottom, and they filled the tank up with water and then shot that, and there was a little light that, that shot up to behind them in the tank and then made that red glow. Mm-hmm. So it was all done practically, of course. They didn't have CG back in these days. So it was all done practically, and I guess there was a guy nearby with a tank full of air in case they needed to give you know however long he's going to be underwater and everything but savini also said he's like i was so freaked out 
because I didn't want to kill Ted Danson. That he's like, I had, yeah. I had this sledgehammer just ready to bash that thing Bust the, in. Yeah, yeah. yeah the right. minute he showed any sign, but he said it went off without take. They only did like two takes, and that was it. And then they, they right. it. But he's like, that he's like that was the only time in any movie ever. I was just like. I don't want to kill this person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's going to Houdini him. With that, we fade to the next day. Or we comic book, I guess, to the next day. Uh, but basically, it's Leslie Nielsen driving back down to the beach where Ted Danson, I presume, was. And the TV that he left there along with the camera, it's all gone. It's all taken away. Like, the TV's half buried into the, the sand. There's this little, like, bucket like plastic bucket kind of like a children's bucket they would use to dig in the sand he pours that pours the sand out right and then he looks out into the ocean and it's just like yep tide took him away that's what it is the tide took him away but you could there's a yeah there's some doubt in the way he says it he's not he's there's a questioning in his tone right yeah right and he's a there's a little bit of concern comes over his face yeah like trepidation and then he as he turns to walk away he's like that's what it is the tide took him away right goes back it goes back home you're right yeah yeah and there's some stock music that they use there george romero is really big on using stock music and uh, that's not the music that john uh, harrison wrote for it it's not the score he he uses like stock music from old warner brothers probably movies or tv shows or something and i love that there right I think we fast forward then to the the next evening, and he's at home and all that stuff, and he's in the in his bed with the robes on, and starts to look at videotapes or something like that that are next to his bed, and then right, all of a right. sudden, and that ashtray is right there on the desk next to him. Which oh is yeah, right, from, right, right from Father's Day. Yeah, yeah, that's love that kind of stuff. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. As as he's doing, he hears a noise when he's looking for the videotapes, and okay. And, and they're showing outdoor shots of the house. Right. Something may be lurking there, right? But uh, what's what starts to allude to that is a, a fog starts to roll in oh, to the right, house. Right, right, yeah. right, right. I think he that's when he goes to the shower and starts to clean up and and, and right. while he's in the shower he hears a noise cuz we're seeing like feet come up to the house and all that right. stuff and and shadows but then like in the cameras where, where, where the security cameras would be recording it, there's nothing there. Right. They're like ghosts. They're not real. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, you, you can see he's kind of getting a little panicked because mm-hmm. he keeps hearing this stuff. He's searching his Shuts living room. Shuts off the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's doing all this stuff. He had already pulled his gun out of his nightstand. Right. And goes downstairs to look for them because he hears noise and he's yelling out. What's out there? And because he, uh, Wentworth was the name of Wentworth, the, yeah, was the name of Ted Danson's character, Wentworth, and he's a like, Wentworth. That's you, Wentworth. May I remind you, dear boy, I have the gun. And he's heading down the stairs. He's thinking somehow he survived this thing. I think he opens the door, and they're right there. Yeah. <laughs> And they're all blue. Yeah, seaweed. Seaweed all over them, and it's both of them. The the, right. the his wife and Ted Danson, right. Wentworth, I should say. Right. And uh, they're they're uh, 
They got this. They're so waterlogged. They're all wrinkly. Yeah, and... they're wrinkled, and that, that and... that's another thing that Tom Savini said. The pieces they wore were made individually of toilet paper and latex, and then applied, lifted off the life mask and applied right to them. It was not a makeup that was created, and pieces were built to do a, you know, it was it was pretty tedious. And then, uh, but it was one piece. Yeah, that's he starts shooting them, but that doesn't do anything. And they're saying anything. to him, Richard, you know, right. we're, we're going to get you, Richard. And But in his voice, that's yeah, like... Yeah, it's all bubbly. Oh, man. I it's deep. And uh, you need to come with us, is what right. they're saying. You need to come with us. Yeah, come with us down to the beach. He runs into the bathroom, locks himself in. You can see him tre trepidatiously looking at the doorknob, waiting for someone to come in. And then he hears something, and he turns around, and boom, there they are. They're in the... Yeah, they're right there in the bathroom. And then basically he goes from absolutely terrified to hysterical. Basically, he's just going nuts because he's laughing yeah. at that. <laughs> yeah, he crazy, starts losing his shit. Those crazy things are behind him—the colorful patterns and the comic book yeah. and stuff. Right. And then next scene, he's buried up to his neck. Right. And uh, this is another line, and we like to uh, we we like to repeat to each other quite a <laughs> right. bit. Is uh, I got And then right then a wave hits him in the face. Right, and he panics. You see this look of yeah, panic. Yeah, you can see, and then it freeze frames on his <laughs> yeah. panic. Right, right, right. It's pretty funny. Yeah, but yeah, that was one of my favorites. Watching it as a kid, this was one of my one of my favorites. Not my number one favorite out of all of them. No, this was one my this was one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's the next one that we're yep. about to start. Yep. We both agree that this is probably most. Children of the 80s, you know, especially boys, right. this would have been their favorite story. Right, right. Of the anthology. And, and um, apparently it's the thing inside the crate, which is what the title of this particular short story is called. The crate mm -hmm. is one of Tom, Tom Savini's favorite things he's ever made. Oh, yeah, yeah. They call it a Tasmanian devil. Right. Essentially. Right. Right. And uh, it stars... Hal, Hal Holbrook, Holbrook. Right. right, and uh, Adrian Barbeau. Barbeau who... Yeah, uh, John Carpenter's ex-wife. Right, right, right. Yeah, and she's really obnoxious in this. And yeah. I saw something about her talking about this, and it might have been in the thing you sent me, but right. um, she's never had a drink in her life. Right, and she's playing a drunk. Right, and uh, so she's she's acting waste through the whole thing. Right. And obnoxiously drunk, you know what I mean? Right. I don't remember the initial meeting with George as clearly as I remember getting the script. And I thought, oh, I can't, I don't think I can do this. This. It was an offer. Uh, it's too gross and, and violent and bloody. And I didn't, I didn't know George's movies. Um, I was married to John Carpenter at the time who said, you know, this man is brilliant. He's the master of horror, and you have to do this. And I thought, I, I don't oh, I don't think so. It basically opens at a, uh, the, a university, like, uh, um, staff party or something like that. Right. And uh, her husband is a, a, a professor at the university, right. and his best friend is, is also a, a professor. Right. Fritz Weaver would be Fritz his Weaver. Hal Holbrook is the main star. Hal Holbrook and Fritz Weaver were actors of great repute. 
and they came in and I think were a little suspect, both of them, you know, I'm coming to Pittsburgh to do this horror movie. But when they realized that we were serious about what we were doing, serious in quotes, they just pitched right in and they, they really played the characters to the hilt. And married to Adrian Barbeau, Fritz Weaver is another guy. I, I love this guy. He's a really good character guy, a character actor, but he's in a lot of really great Twilight Zone episodes. The original, mm-hmm. not, the, yeah. not the newer one. Yeah, and basically well, they're at this party and, and uh, you know, she's being obnoxious and drunk and... Um, What's her name? Wilma and... Yeah. Uh, he, his name's Henry. Oh, Henry. Henry. Oh, Henry. You yeah. know, what would you ever do without me is her phrase. Right. You know? Oh, Henry. You are such a little kid. I swear to God you are. I mean, where would you be without me to take care of you? She's basically constantly degrading him and... Right. His friend, played by Fritz, is like, give, yeah. always giving him the look, you know. Dexter is his name. <laughs> Dexter, that's right. Dexter, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah. Dexter guy is kind of set up to be kind of a, he's one of those professors. Yeah, he's an older yeah. gentleman like like Hal Holbrook, but he's kind of set up to be like. He's single. Right, he's single and he's kind of sleeping around with his students. With his, his <laughs> students, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, while they're at the party being obnoxious and all that stuff, mm-hmm. we cut to the university. Yeah. There's this janitor that's down in the laboratory area basement of the university. He's uh, flipping a quarter because he's about to buy a soda or something. And it hits the ground and rolls under the stairway. And under the stairway, there's this little caged off area with a little gate to it that uh, has something in there, but the quarter rolls in between the fence of this little gate, and as he's going to look for it, he sees that in this caged underneath stairway area, there's some kind of crate over into the corner, and he shines a light on it, and he realizes, hey, I might have found something here, and this is where the story basically takes off. They find the crate. And it says um, something, it says the year is 1863 on it, you know, and... Uh, Has all these different locations it's been, or right, uh, stamped. Uh, right. And uh, two big chains with right. old-timey padlocks <laughs> holding <laughs> right. it shut. Right. Right. So the janitor gets excited, and he calls Dexter, who apparently that's his wing of the university he calls dexter from the party you know, while who's at the party right. takes the phone call and excitedly tells him about it and he's like yeah it's not a big deal and then when he tells him the year he's like oh Whoa. <laughs> holy crap and yeah. and uh you know he's like, and then that theme from raiders starts could be the ark yeah the ark of the covenant so he um leaves the party and hops in his little uh <laughs> his little triumph for whatever it is and heads on down to the uh, <laughs> right. to the university uh, to see what's going on. Right. And that leaves Henry, unfortunately, alone with Wilma. And <laughs> she's being, of course, demeaning to him at the party in front of all these people. And then out of nowhere, Henry pulls out this giant gun <laughs> and he calls her name and then shoots her right in the head. Oh, God, Henry, what's wrong now? Not a thing, Wilma. Everything's just fine. And he, he, it's like jarring, but he he looks around and all of these people at the party start clapping for him. (laughs) (laughs) It's this really surreal moment. And then, boom, he snapped out of it. 
and uh, he's hallucinating, of course. Right, right. So, yeah. But he's uh, snapping back into reality. He's, of course, still taking abuse from her. He's, of course, extremely defeated guy. He's very defeated. He's a, he's a, he's a big pussy, and uh, he doesn't really um, stand up to her at all. He right. has a very bad posture. Right. And well, I think that he even calls her Billy, doesn't he? It's her name's Wilma, but they call her Call Me Billy. Everybody does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what she says. <laughs> oh, That's dude. right. You ever, if you've ever been to a party and you've had that most obnoxious person of the party come up to talk to you and you cannot think of anything else but just getting away from this person, that's what she is. Yeah, she's if that If you've character. never had that experience yeah. at a party, you're that yeah. person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but anyway, so we flash back to the university. Dexter arrives. Uh, him and a janitor pull out the crate from underneath that stairwell, get it into a laboratory, put it up on top of the little desk in, in the laboratory, and then they start to... Uh, open it up. So they pick the locks off with it, like, or they beat them off with hammers or something. Right, and yeah. The old, the old man, the old janitor man's like, hey, these are probably worth something, you know? Right. And but, then it's and nailed, too. Yeah, there's like, old-fashioned, the old-fashioned kind, too. Right. That don't have, like, heads on them. They're, right. they're like, they're like real thin triangles. So they have to, they, they do the crowbar thing where they, they pry it halfway up and then, you know, he looks inside or whatever and doesn't really see anything. Yeah. Right. But then they beat the hammer back down to get the nails out. and right. uh, That's when he says something like, I heard something. I heard yeah. something there. It's like a chirping or something. Yeah, right, right, yeah. And uh, they get it halfway open, and the janitor is able to see inside. And he that's when we get that famous shot. Because he's looking inside, and this little hint of light goes inside. And that's when we see... Those eyes. Of the yeah. famous eyes of the creature looking back at him. Yeah. Creepy, man. Yeah. But the uh, the janitor then, because he sees the eyes, he gets excited and for some reason yeah. sticks his right. hand inside of it. That's what it is. Yeah. Right, and the thing flips over, and uh, he's basically, he falls down onto his butt, like, back right. to the table, and uh, his hand is up in there, because I think the guy was, tr- Dexter was trying to help him out, but Dexter freaks out and pulls back, and then... Yeah, like, like anyone blood. would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he's just sitting there with, in awe, and yeah. then you see, like, I think you kind of see the hand come out and just yep. start pulling the guy up inside yeah, of there. Yeah, pulling him in the crate. Yeah, and you hear right. this, and, and, his blood's pouring down his pouring legs. Pouring down his yeah. body, his torso, and, yeah. and yeah, and his feet go up, and they're, like, Ace. kicking and screaming, and then, yeah. Yeah. And and Dexter freaks the fuck out and uh, runs away. Oh, yeah. You, this fight or flight, you fly on this one. Shut up! Shut up! He's running out of the building. He ends up running into some other student that happens to be in the building and starts freaking out on this student. And the student's like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, he basically begins to explain the whole thing to him. Dexter does, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And Just total, total panic, hysterics. Not making any sense. And like, the guy's like, have you been drinking too much right. kind of thing? And he's like, I think you're... It's one of those great. It. It's one of those great things in movies because when you're watching the movie and you've seen what that character who's panicking sees, yeah. 
when he they're telling someone else and they're not believing and they're just like well why the fuck are you believing him because i know it's true but if you're in that other guy's shoes you're just like yeah. what the fuck is this yeah. guy on you're ridiculous and <laughs> yeah. yeah so when they go back down because it's downstairs yeah the crates back in the yep back on the under the back stairs. under the stairs yep yeah. So what it uh, what what we surmise happened is the the creature. Well, and they say it. They basically say it. He's like he must pushed it back under the stairs where he felt safe for all these years. Oh right, right. That's right. what that's what Dexter says. Right. And um, there's blood everywhere. There's a trail of yeah. you know like uh, a trail of blood from the crate dragging the the janitor's blood trail <laughs> right. on underneath the stairs. And there's a chewed up. Shoe, shoe, next, right outside of the crate, and the, the um, the student starts to believe, and he goes, "I just wanna, just wanna get a look at this shoe, you know, right. and then study it, study right. the bite marks, basically." Right. And Dexter's yeah. just like, "Don't do Don't it! Don't do it!" Yeah, right, right. And as soon as he, the cre the creature is actually in the corner of the stairs, right, and comes out and just slashes his face. Oh man. It's rough, and, too. Yeah, you yeah, see right. gouges in it. Oh, man. And he slams his head against the wall, yeah. too, and, like, runs his fingers down his face. Yeah. And then I think he takes a big bite out of his neck. Yep. And he and when this thing has, like, this... It's kind of Muppety, in a way. Yeah. It's like if it, it, the Muppet from your worst nightmares. <laughs> because the mouth on it opens similar to, say, uh, like a Bert from, or right. Bert and Ernie kind of mouth. Right, but right. But it is riddled with these razor sharp triangular right probably you know inch and a half teeth and that's what bites into the guy's neck and pulls a huge chunk of flesh out right and and then the thing i think it climbs into the crate and pulls the guy into the crate yep and eats him and he at one point he reaches out to dexter dexter goes to grab his hand and then yeah. he sees he's being pulled back so dexter's like fuck that <laughs> yeah right 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 <laughs> and then and dexter just gets the he just gets the fuck out gets the fuck out of there and he 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 heads to, uh, but what we hadn't seen in between this, somewhere in between, there was a cross cut where Will, uh, Billy and, and and Henry are at home finally, right. and they have a big fancy mansion. Right. Uh, she wants to go out and go drinking or something like that right. with her friends, and she leaves him alone, and he's home alone basically. Right. And shortly after that, is Dexter comes to his house again in complete hysterics yeah. and freaking the fuck out, and he's. They're in the in Henry's study where they right. where they normally meet together and play chess. Right. Yeah. Henry pours Dexter a much needed drink. Yeah. Because he's like, "You're not making any fucking sense. Slow right. down. Tell the story." And then he tells him the whole story. Right. And... Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Henry pours Dexter the cognac just to calm down to get right, that to, story. Right. To get the story out. Yeah. yeah. Telling yeah. this ridiculous story. <laughs> right. Right. And Henry's not like, "Oh, I don't believe this," or "Tish." He's like. I see, I uh, see a gate out of opportunity. my opportunity. <laughs> opportunity is wide open, and he goes, "Let's get you another drink, Dex." I know, no, 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 I've had enough. Cast <laughs> it out of my gourd. Shock, I guess. Just one more for the both of us. While we talk this over, we may need it. Yeah. Okay. Henry pours something into Dexter's drink. Right. And he um. It's really good too. This between Hal Hal Holbrook and and, and um, Fritz Weaver, really good acting between it because it's a little over the top. But Hal's playing it very low key, low key, right. like super sensitive in a way right, and everything. Right. Henry ends up drugging Dexter, 
Dexter passes out, and then... Yeah, as Henry Henry leaves, he locks him into the that study or whatever it is, right. and and leaves this starts writing this note to right. Wilma, and he basically takes Dexter's car to the to the university, and and he comes he comes in and goes downstairs, and sure enough, there's blood all over the floor. Right. He finds the janitor's broken glasses and and all that stuff, and um. What he does is he puts on an apron and some gloves and <laughs> just starts mopping up all of the blood. You know, right. he's going to start cleaning the place up and stuff. And as he's doing that, Billy dr- pulls into the driveway of her home and it's it's the sun has set. It's nighttime now. Right. And she comes into the house and, you know, yelling, Henry, where the hell are you? Kind of thing. Right. And, and she doesn't find him. And uh, she goes to the kitchen and, or, and gets a... Uh, carton of milk and starts drinking milk yeah. and she finds yeah she it's gross it's weird she, <laughs> i always thought that was weird too yeah, yeah. it's just like after being drunk and why would you drink milk <laughs> yeah ugh. but she's she had found the letter on the uh on the fridge and she starts reading it and it's being narrated in in hal Bro- holbrook's voice and it's right when dex called me he was barely coherent he was gibbering with fear and crying i think oh poor dad I tried to get him to tell me what had happened to the girl, but for the most part, he only kept repeating, it's awful, Henry. It's awful. And she's responding to his uh, narration, though. I love that. And she basically falls for it, hook, line, and sinker, and, you know, kind of stumbles to the car and heads down to the... Yeah, to the university. And what I love about when she arrives is he's already got everything cleaned up. Uh, Henry's yep. already got everything cleaned he's up. He's just putting stuff away as he right. hears her upstairs. He starts putting the mops and stuff away. Right. So she uh, she she comes downstairs. She approaches him. I love how, how Holbrook plays this because he plays it in a kind of gleeful way because he knows or he thinks he knows this is going to be Billy's end. So he But he's whispering. He's whispering but with this glee and also like a bit of nervousness and desperation all mixed in there. But pr- it's in a whisper. What he's so trying good. to do is not scare the, the monster. Right. <laughs> so he's not. He's trying not to do that, but he's also, you can see a little bit of desperation. Like, I yeah. need this to work. This has <laughs> yeah, to right, 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 right. What are you laughing about? Your best friend gets in a scrape with a girl and you're laughing? Well, there's a funny side to it, Wilma. Wait till you see. You'll think so yourself. You're hysterical, Henry. It's just what I would have expected. So, uh, basically, Henry here tells Billy that this girl that Dexter supposedly almost raped or whatever he tells her is under the stairs hidden and she won't come out. And then he lets Billy go do her thing. She creeps down there and she's crawling under there. He goes, then they're in the back, you know, and right. he's kind of standing behind her, like lurking over her. Right. Because they're showing it from the uh, crate's perspective almost, you right. know. And it's uh, getting closer and closer, and she's like, well, where the hell is she? Right. You kind of thing. And, and he... Uh, <laughs> he grabs her. Uh, uh, Holbrook grabs her and just starts shaking her. He's like, "Come and get her! Come! And, this is what you get, you bitch!" Kind of thing, you know. And she's, and 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 it's funny. Adrian's face and this whole thing. She just kind of yeah. gets this look of amazement. Yeah, like, like wow. I can't believe he's actually doing this. I can't believe you had the balls. <laughs> While her head is flipping back and forth, you know, like because he's got her by the shoulders and she's got this giant like perm thing too. From yeah, the 80s. yeah, one of those real eighties perms. 
and and he's banging her shoulders against the uh, crate. crate, going, yeah. "Come on, come and get your dinner, come yeah. on," you know, and and nothing's happening. And it slowly dawns on him, nothing's yeah. happening. So yeah. he slowly stops banging her into this this crate, and he his words are slow slowing down, like, uh, like, oh shit. <laughs> Another <laughs> thing that just doesn't work out for me. Yeah, and and guess who's quick to point that out? Right. Same old Henry. Afraid of your own shadow. You know what, Henry? You're a regular barnyard exhibit. Sheep's eyes, chicken guts, piggy friends, and shit for brains. And then she starts completely verbally annihilating him. Yeah. Just berating him <laughs> and ripping him apart. As in, you could just see all the hopes and dreams. Yep. Slowly wash across his face and down the drain. <laughs> right. Right. And then... <laughs> yeah, all of the sudden... <laughs> the top opens up, yeah. And it t- she turns and... But you don't really see a lot of gore right here. It's just mainly Billy responding to the monster coming at her. The monster, really good close-ups of the monster, grabs a hold of Billy and bites into her neck. But we don't really see a lot of gore, as I said. We see Henry slam up against the wall, and then he says this really funny line. Just tell it call you Billy. <laughs> That's right. And uh, after our, our, the... The dust has settled, so to right. speak. That's when he goes in back under there, and um, he's like super softly trying to hook the the loop, the last loop of the chain, right, right. with the lock. Yeah. And then, he, <laughs> so he gets it on there, and then he's holding up the bottom end of the chain, and he's just so close to. <laughs> and right as he gets it hooked, the thing pops up, and his hands come out, and his reaches really quick he locks it real quick right it's secured and then gets the other chain on it locks it up and he's good to go yep and he has it in wilma's station wagon that she came in he (laughs) put it in the back and yeah and he he's driving it to this location that he and dexter discussed earlier where they were both talking about well if this thing's in this crate we can get it in the crate what can we do with it he talks about a quarry so that's where henry's driving right now so he gets to the precipice of this thing it's like a cliff and then the, the quarry is actually filled with it's a lake right and and as he goes to pull it down off of the the car and it hits the ground the thing just jumping around inside the box yeah and he he jumps back for a second right. yeah so then he eventually he just pushes it off the the the, the, the cliff into the quarry and you mm-hmm. see the crate kind of sink down into the the bottom of the water and he drives off home and he the next scene is basically him and Dexter's woken up and he's explaining the whole situation to him that and the, and the, what he did that he right had Billy exterminated right. <laughs> and uh basically that he cleaned up the whole mess and and I'm you know very happy he's kind of <laughs> but but at the same time he's also kind of talking with trepidation you know like right are we gonna keep this between us or right. what and they're you playing know? And chess at the time which is a really really visual nice right. touch Dexter basically is like, how did you know I wouldn't have called the cops, you know, when I was, if I woke up early or something like that, you right. know. He basically is just concerned. Dexter is concerned. Well, what did you do with it? He's like, right. I, He's like, oh, that quarry you mentioned that you had, you already, you had already figured out the end of the story for me. So I brought it to the quarry and dropped it. It's, 
the thing drowned in the, you know, a yeah. hundred feet of water or something like that. It's safe. Nothing's ever going to happen. And so then we fade to the uh, crate sitting at the bottom of the lake there, yeah. and uh, all of a sudden the, the crate just explodes. Boom! Yeah. yeah and, and then you just see this watery background. Bubbling. And then yeah. the eyes. Right. Those eyes come in, right? Yeah. The same scene from earlier. So awesome. Yeah, that's that was one of that was one of my favorite ones, and and mostly due to the the gore they showed mm-hmm. on the student and that yep. that practical gore, you know, yep. like like what we've talked about, that you just don't see that in in movies anymore. Nope. Um, horror movies these days they tend to just be more about the um, ghosts and demons and possessions and you know spooky right. children and all that jump stuff. scares, yeah, jump and jump scares and all that stuff. Yeah. There's not there's not a whole lot of like flesh and blood and guts right. kind of stuff you know like right. there used to be and and you could do that really well with pra- good practical effects. The only thing that does that in today's media is The Walking Dead. Right, and, and it does it beautifully. Yeah, that show's taking a massive nosedive, but right. um, it's it, it's if anything that uh, The Walking Dead has elevated practical effects to a new level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, and, and it's just you know it's 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 a bummer because the the time that this movie came out was like the heyday of when these effects were really just really taking over horror mm-hmm. at this time mm-hmm. and sci-fi but horror mainly so you know you had these Savini and Rick Bakers and Rob Bottines and all of these guys and uh, you know, Greg Nicotero and his uh, the what's his name Berger that that was his partner in, in his mm-hmm. business for a while all of those guys are are coming in and just doing all of these things that there's no way <laughs> you could imagine that they would be able to do. And they do it. They pull it off under yeah. some, most of the time under a horrendous schedule and very little money. <laughs> right. And, but I think like how we're both attracted to the savage re of the werewolf and that, and there's something about in our inner 11 year old that is really attracted to a wild yeah. beast. And this, and this, particular episode is that you know yeah it feels it's that. this yeah, little yeah. yeah it's just a smaller version you know this right little, yeah it's a little little monster muppet version <laughs> little muppet monster yeah <laughs> but tom savini who deemed this monster from the crate he named it uh fluffy and he has a really interesting story about how it came to be sometimes the script is pretty explicit as to what they want but this simply said we see a blur of fur and teeth that left it wide open so i had rick catazone do some sketches, and Phil Wilson, and uh, I did some sketches. And we gave them all to Stephen King and George Romero for them to pick what Fluffy, what they wanted Fluffy to look like. Well, they picked one of my sketches, and so that's why Fluffy looks the way he does. I think he's the Tasmanian devil, you know. That was my, that's my impression when I thought about him. But I knew he had to have a big jaw and a big mouth if he's gonna gobble people up, and that's why he has that, that big jaw. And it was a Fluffy puppet with rubber teeth. The real Fluffy's teeth would hurt you. They were very sharp, and when they clamped down, they could really hurt you. He's probably only like three foot tall or whatever, and but almost three foot wide, you know? Right. And, and like I said, a huge mouth of teeth. And, and, and what I was saying was, is when that student gets attacked and mauled and, and his face ripped open and, and, you know, the blood dripping out and all that stuff, you just can't do that with CG and make no. it look real. Right. And, and, and it's something off about it i don't know it's 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 the kind of stuff that gets you into horror movies you yeah know? 
So and it's and it's and it's the reason why we we're doing this podcast, right? right. Is to be able to kind of uh, expose these old movies and and talk right. about a little bit of what's lacking in today's movies, right? In general, and it sh- it sh- it shouldn't because now there's <laughs> bigger budgets with even cooler things you can do with animatronics and stuff, right? Right. Anyway, I think it's about time we get to the second story in Tim's phobias. Story number two, which helps contribute to the uh, fear, is I remember sleeping in my bed in my dad's house, and I'm in high school, maybe about junior or senior year. And I used to have an oscillating fan on the side of my bed, you know, that would just go back and forth and back and forth and blow on me because it would be hot. And I had this blanket that even though it was hot, I would still sleep under this blanket. And it used to have like this kind of satiny edge on it, you know, that would hide, that would cover the end of the blanket. And it was getting all tattered and all the little strings were hanging off of it and all that stuff because it was getting old. So one night I'm sleeping and as I'm kind of coming to, you know, kind of coming out of my sleep because I'm being disturbed by something brushing against my face. And I like, I'm, I don't open my eyes, but I'm awake at this point and I'm going, oh, I guess that's the strings from this piece of edge of the blanket. Every time the fan comes by, it's blowing the string into my face and it's rubbing on my cheek. And then... It goes away when the fan goes away, kind of like, and then all of a sudden it comes back and I'm more awake now and I'm more present in mind when I feel it. I'm like, this is prickly and sharp. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. I wait until it's gone off of my face. And then I just throw the blanket and jump out of bed and run around the corner of the bed and turn the light on and then I, 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 I move the blanket and sure enough it's one of those two inch sewer roaches. It was crawling on my face and I just, I grabbed my chin, you know, like, because I can, I can still feel the way it had prickled on my face with those sharp little legs. And I ran to the kitchen and got the raid and just came into my room and just sprayed the shit out of it until my room was like toxic of fumes, you know? (laughs) And it finally died. And so that pushed me pretty much over the edge and cemented my fear for life. So, next story. In the next story, one of your yeah. favorites, Tim. Oh God. <laughs> Let's talk. Okay, so the next story is, is is basically one called "They're Creeping Up on You." Yeah. When I saw this movie for the first time, uh, I had lived in uh, Hudson Valley area of New York, as I've mentioned a bunch of times, and um, there's bugs and stuff up there. Right. But there's not really cockroaches. Right. So I had no exposure to them. Right. This movie was the first ever real exposure I had to cockroaches. And so I had no fear. And and I watched it from the beginning. And I thought it was great. I thought it was awesome. You know, and it's basically this old man who lives in this future. And he's like a power broker of some sort, like a business runner. uh, But he's 
afraid of the outside world and right, he yeah. stays in it's his like agoraphobia he, basically yeah he's germaphobe. got agoraphobia germaphobe all that right. stuff and he 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 reigns his empire with a you know an iron stick from within his apartment his right. sterilized apartment right and he's a crotchety old guy and and they you know in his the conversation they he has with his employer on the phone they basically show you what a dick he actually right is. and a woman i guess lost he he's recently lost a an employee who has died and basically committed suicide because of how tough he is on his employees or whatever. So the, mm-hmm. the, all through the story, basically, this wife keeps calling him and saying, you're an asshole. I hope you die and all of this stuff. <laughs> right, right. All of this stuff. I don't he, remember any of that. Yeah, right, right, right. So in preparation for this show, just so you guys know, Tim yeah. watched everything up to that point and then after that, but yeah, not right, that story. <laughs> right. I, I, I basically told, and I, you know, it was funny. I, you know, I watched it twice. I watched it last week from this recording and I watched it uh, back in, say, I think maybe March or February or so. So, yeah. Like and when I went to, yeah, about six months ago. And when I went to watch it in six months ago, I was texting Derek and I said, I'm going to give it a shot. It's been. You know, ten, 10 years since I've seen it, and I, you know, I think I can handle it, and I want to test my merit, you know. Right. And so I do start to watch the story after the crate, uh, and you know, it shows the old man, you know, in his thing, and he's spraying something. You know, you can tell there's a dead bug in front of him, but it's right. from a distance. You know, you don't really <laughs> see it. And I'm like, okay, it's slowly starting. <laughs> and so he's on the phone doing that phone conversation I was just talking about. That's the only reason I know it because that's recent in my head uh, where he's being a dick to his employer. Right. Employee, I mean. And as he's looking around the room, there's there's like a corner like uh, that he's staring at, like a corner of the building where there's isolated room that he has. And right. li- I don't know how they got him to do this, but this little fucking cockroach sticks his head around the corner. The entomologist would go, like in these scenes where there was only one roach, right. they'd come in and just pick it up like it was a pretty pet cat or something. They'd pick it up and they'd say, here, hold this for a minute. And I'd say, not me. And the guy looks at it and sees it. And as soon as I saw that thing stick, that stupid little triangular 45 degree angled head, with the two-inch antennas coming. I said, nope, can't do it. Not going to do it. Not happening. Not gonna, I am not over this phobia. Oh, man. Anyway, getting on to this story, it's not a, it's not, we don't have to go into super detail of this story. You basically explain it. It's this old miser guy who's uh, played brilliantly by E.G. Marshall. I love that guy. He's, there's a, there's a group of uh, character actors back in the day that I used to love. Love Jack Warden, loved, uh, Charles Durning loved mm-hmm. uh, uh, loved uh, E.G. Marshall and all of these guys, but um, mm-hmm. he plays this part. You know, it's it's a little cartoony the way he plays mm-hmm. him because he's super evil. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he like lives a mad scientist, in right? Way. Yeah, yeah, he totally has that mad scientist look, like a Doc Brown before mm-hmm. Doc Brown look. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you you see him come off as he doesn't really care about anyone. He's mean. He's racist to the guy who's coming to like take care of his 
apartment or whatever. It's, a, it's this black dude that's coming to take care of him. You can tell he's really very racist about that stuff. So he's All complaining right. to him about, I found another one. I found it here. I found it there. And as the story progresses, they just become worse and worse and worse. It's, it's basically like this guy's penance for being such a dick his whole life is these things. Yeah, and it's almost like it's almost like they're plotting against him. Right, exactly. So it gets worse and worse. They're coming out of the woodwork and everything. He Anyway, anyway he ends up... Uh, by the end of this, they become so overrun, he goes into what looks like this like panic room or safe room, but it's made of glass. And so right. he can look out into it safely from his place, which is going completely haywire, like the lighting is all messing up because they're in the wiring. So many bugs, All yeah. of this stuff, you know. You'll never get in here. Never. And when this blackout is over, people are going to pay. Oh, yes. And you'll pay, too. Every one of you. Every damn one of you. The phone starts ringing in this, in this little safe room that he has. He 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 hits the button to put it on speaker to talk to whoever it is on the other side. And it's this woman that I mentioned. I hope you die. I hope you die. So while she's saying all of this stuff, he looks down at the bed and he realizes it's moving around under the blanket. And then of course uh. these things are all in there and they infest him. And that's how he ends up there. So it's really. That's that's the basic story of it. It's one of the more well-known. Like, if people don't remember anything else from this movie, it's usually that one that is remembered because of... It's all real cockroaches and stuff. The stories that they tell about how they got the cockroaches for this is just absolutely... It's more horrifying than the story, I think. <laughs> yeah, right. They sent two entomologists to Trinidad to collect the roaches. And according to them, the roaches live in bat shit, bat guano. You know, and... Um, the, and, all, and these guys just put rubber bands around their pants legs and, you know, wore lights on their helmets. And um, they would dig a, a hole in the bat guano. I mean, it, it, and deep. They would put their arm as far as they could and dig a hole, turn the lights off, wait a minute, turn the lights back on, the hole would be filled with roaches, big, big roaches, little roaches, you know, medium roaches. And then stuff them in plastic bags, turn the lights off and wait until the hole kept filling up with roaches. They said there were so many roaches living in the back guano that they would lie, just lie down on the floor of the cave and the roaches would move them around. Oh, God. Yeah, what a nightmare. But when Tom Savini told that story, I was like, that's way worse than even what the movie showed. But the movie, I mean, it is, it does make you squeamish, even for people without the phobia. I mean, we should at least mention that he's lying there on the bed and you think he's asleep. Right. Uh, and everything's gone away. There's no more bugs. But then... His forehead starts to move and all that stuff, and they 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 start coming out of his mouth and like, chest. They burst through his chest. chest. Yeah. yeah, right. And then basically, as they pan out, that that whole glass um, full filled with like halfway up. Right, with, uh, and the rest of the apartment now is completely cleanable. Right, so, right like you right. said, they're plotting against them basically. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the set was in this uh, high school gymnasium that they rented out this high school gymnasium to put up <laughs> sets and stuff. Right, right. And they said that there was a cockroach wrangler. Apparently, there's these people out here that that are supposedly know so much about them. So they're just like, how do we keep them from just going over the walls and out in off the set, basically? Because mm. we don't want them to get off the set. So is there any way to do it? And the cockroach wrangler basically said, yeah, if you put Vaseline at the top of every single 
surface they can climb over they won't go near it they won't go over it because they get stuck in it and then they're they they basically steer away from it because they know they can't get through it so they're like okay so they 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 put vaseline over every edge of the set that they possibly can they contain the set put vaselines in any area where they think they can get out and then they let the cockroaches loose in this for the first day of filming and the cockroaches go up the wall and right over the Vaseline and then <laughs> yeah. into the set and everyone's freaking out and running out of the sta- sound stage and everything like that. So this ended up, they ended up bringing all these cockroaches to this area where they filmed it and then this area became infested with these cockroaches that they never had in this area and still to this day have, have them. Yeah. I, and some of them are, are like exotic, you know. Right. Yeah. Gi- those giant ones that make like the like that. Yeah. Weird. Right. They're like, like four inches. Right. Oh God. But anyway, that's enough of that. So uh, it wraps up Thank as you. we said with that bu- that bookend, that bookend of the little boy. Well, w- well. First, we go to the garbage men. Right. Right. Garbage men. One of them played by Tom Savini. They're right. there to pick up the trash. They see the, they see the creep show comic book that's there. They start reading through it, making fun of some of the things. They look at the ads, like you mentioned, right, and realize that there's one for a voodoo doll, but right. it's already been sent away for it. So the little part area where you put your name and address and order it and the money order and everything has been cut out yep. and sent off. Yeah. So uh, we get back into the house. We see that the wife and the father are in the kitchen. She's ironing, and he's sitting at the table having some issues, apparently, with his neck. She's complaining that he, he was a little too hard on the son and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's like, ah, you know. Yeah, don't worry about it. And then that's when he starts complaining about his neck. Right, right. And she's ironing while he's complaining about his neck. And she's realizing that there's big pieces cut out of the cloth of his shirt. She's not saying anything or verbalizing anything to the father. But she's like, hmm, this is kind of strange. But we'll find out that the cloth that is cut out of that shirt is on Billy's voodoo doll that he mailed off for. And he, we see, cut to him, see him stabbing that voodoo doll. Right in the neck. Yeah, in the neck. And the father starts feeling it even more and even more and he's gasping for breath basically and right then, right and then when we get back up and see the boy again he we end on that line of him stabbing the doll one more time saying ready for another shot dog excellent movie yep lots of fun i've probably seen it Outside of the cockroach story, I've probably seen it like five, six times over my years. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Easily that for me, because, you know, it, there's those times where it come on HBO or Showtime or TBS. Mm-hmm. I remember, I think, I'm pretty sure that uh, Monster Vision, when uh, Joe Bob Briggs had his show, mm-hmm. he did he yeah. did it, and I watched it on there and everything. I've always, I just love, love this movie. Yeah, me too. Onward and upward we go to the next one. (laughs) So here's the gist. 
you want to talk to us, you want comments, you want reviews, all this horse shit. How could they not, really? Instagram and Facebook, we are mm. at TFTFP Podcast. If you want to tweet us or twit us or whatever it is out there, yeah, you just have to go podcast TFTFP. Yeah, because the other one was taken. Yeah. And <laughs> Jerks. send us a gosh darn glorious little email. No dick pics, please. Uh, Tim, uh, don't, at, uh, don't tell him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Care of Derek. No, the oh. email The email address <laughs> is uh, tftfppodcast at gmail.com. Glorious. And we also have a spectacular little Patreon page that should be in the description wherever you downloaded this podcast. If you go there, you can get extra content. And just for half the price of a cup of coffee, you can get our warm voices poured into your ear freshly brewed it's just amazing it's really nice and we're so much better for you than coffee too we don't make you shit as much well i wouldn't go that far tim <laughs> like subscribe <laughs> and review us and make it positive right i mean you can be negative about other things just don't mention us with the negativity we're, we're delicate over here i got a thin skin yes creep show two yes so let's let's assess this for a minute. Let's put the pants on before we go walking in them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, eighty-two, the first one comes out. Yeah. Big hit, big right. hit. They spend eight million dollars on it. They get back almost thirty million, which is a lot back then. Yeah. Uh, it comes to end up doing a sequel. It takes them till eighty-seven to put out the sequel. Right. Which is something. I mean, if you if you calculate that with horror sequels at the time. There was yeah. a Friday the 13th every, every year. year after 1980. <laughs> right. You're right. Well, and I mean, we got to come out and say it. Uh, it's not on par to the no. first one. It well, definitely it, yeah. had its issues, and we'll get into the budgetary issues. And, and, and the biggest change is the lack of George Romero. I mean, I think he he's, he's credited as a producer. Right. But... Um, there was a lot of, because of the budgetary issues, I think he went into it thinking, Hey, this was a big success. Give me a bigger budget for the next one. And they're like, no, we're going to give you a smaller one. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he, he really, he really was excited after the first one became a hit. He was hoping it would be a hit. It was a bigger hit than he even thought it was going to be. I right. believe it was actually the biggest hit of his whole career. Yeah, I can believe that. You know, because I mean, his zombie movies are looked back on with affection. The first three, anyway, not the not the ones he was doing later on that. Yeah, a lot of cult status. Yeah, they're very culty, and they became right. bigger on video and TV and stuff like that. But they never made a lot of money at the box no. office. So uh, going into the second one, apparently George Romero was very excited about it, and his idea was to to build it out and bring in other horror directors to do some of the other different vignettes in the movie. He was still going to do one and then he was going to have someone like Carpenter come in and do one. And, uh, all the really well-known guys, Toby Hooper, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess the company was kind of dragging their feet a bit about the budget and what they wanted out of the sequel. Enough red tape for Romero to start to turn his attention towards other things since this was going to be a big headache. So yeah. He basically went on to do other things. The company still wanted to do one, but they were hassling about it and everything. Uh, Romero owned a company called Laurel Entertainment with another guy named R uh, Richard Rubenstein, I believe. And he's the one that brought about the Tales from the Dark Side series. Right. Man lives. 
lives in the sunlit world of what he believes to be reality. So Romero's partner then, uh, the only way he could get a lot of interest in the Tales from the Dark Side show was to get Romero on board. Romero was just kind of iffy on it, but he it would benefit his company since he was part of Laurel Entertainment to put his name on it. So people would be like, hey, look, George Romero has something to do with this. I'm going to watch this. probably no. scary. <laughs> but yeah, Tales from the Dark Side, the TV show, the... Romero's involvement in that is very minor. I think he maybe wrote a couple episodes, maybe directed one. I'm not 100% sure, but he was mainly just name only on that thing to get bring people in, make a few bucks off of it. And then once talk started finally moving ahead with Creepshow 2, it was very apparent that the budget was not going to be generous, even though they had a hit before. And so I think Romero just basically came on as producer. He wrote the screenplay with Stephen King, I believe, and then kind of did his own thing right right he basically gets angry and 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 says i'm not doing it kind of thing right, right? yeah because right. he's not going to direct it yeah the director ended up being a guy named michael gornick i believe right this project began uh, for me certainly i was waiting in the wings i had no idea that i'd be offered a feature by richard rubenstein and the then laurel entertainment um as i believe this was initially earmarked for tom savini and at some point in time, either Tom's availability, uh, whatever, uh, the project came to me. Uh, I had just met with some success and notoriety because I had directed uh, a few episodes of the then Tales from the Dark Side television series. Um, it wasn't an automatic. Uh, there was a whole process, as usual, with acceptance by the bonding company, mm -hmm. the distribution company. But uh, that was my entry into... Uh, Creepshow 2. Michael Gornick comes in to uh, take his place as the director. And right. And inherits a, a mess. <laughs> right. He inherits, he inherits a mess. A mess. And, and, and what I was going to say is I think he does okay considering. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and the budget was cut even more, right? After the fact. Right. Yeah. So the first one, they gave him $8 million after a little bit of bargaining. It was supposed to be 6 They They took him up to 8 When yeah. the sequel came around, even with Romero attached, they said, we're only going to give you 6 this time. Yeah. And so he said, okay, well, we'll do what we can with what we got. And then the, the problems ensued. So by the time Romero leaves... The budget's cut down to $3 million. Right, right. Many of these stories that, uh, two of the stories in particular that wound up in Creepshow 2, uh, were given consideration in the previous installment of Creepshow, Creepshow 1. I see. And were rejected for one reason or another. Uh, so I, I knew of the hitchhiker, I knew of Old Chief Woodenhead, and um, I was quite excited when I uh, found them in place in Creepshow 2. It affects the movie so much that even one of the stories is cut off. Two of them. There were other stories. Uh, initially, Creepshow 2 was to have five, uh, just like its, uh, its sister, uh, Creepshow 1. Mm -hmm. But uh, for one reason or another, budget, etc., it was decided that three was a magic number. So I remember seeing this pretty, you know, probably I would have been in Tucson by this point. So you, do you, did you see it at the theater? No, no, I, I, it was a, it was a VHS rental okay. for sure. Right. We, yeah, we owned our own VCR by this point, <laughs> and uh, I remember it had a really big impact on me. I was probably I was in junior high, and um, you know the whole thanks for the ride, lady, you know that comes up later. We'll talk about. Right. That was that go, going back to the school bus quoting type stuff. That was a that was a big story that we all <laughs> talked about. You know. Right. Just. 
everybody loved that story when I was a kid. And, um, you know, just revisiting it over the years, it, 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 you, like I said, the more I watch it as I get older, the more you can see the flaws in it and all that right. stuff. And, but, um, definitely saw it within the first year of its coming out and, and, and loved the piss out of it. Right. Yep. No, for sure. The movie starts out, it's this truck pulls up on this little small town corner, uh, the back of it opens up, and we are introduced to this new, new version of the creep, right. which is not very good. He's like a right. witch man, you know, like yeah. your, your classic pointy-hatted witch, as far as the face goes, with the like a warlock. chin sticking right way out, and the, yeah, and the right. nose sticking way out, and all that. Right. I've never seen anyone so impatient. As if your life depended on getting the first copy of the presses. <laughs> I really didn't like that. And then it, it's I didn't it's Tom Servini in the makeup. Yeah, he's he's yeah. doing the thing, and and he's throwing out packs of Creepshow comics. Right. Yeah. And there's this kid, this Billy kid, that's waiting on the corner there. It seems like he's waiting anyway for the pack of creep show comics to be delivered the, the creep is doing these really kind of over exaggerated movements and you can tell they had to adr his voice in after the fact because there's no way right you could get a mic on that mask yeah you, you can't get a mic on that mask and and be able to hear anything that's and not it, tom savini yeah yeah you're right it doesn't it doesn't sound like tom savini yeah he has that that ghoulish yeah like, deep voice the, what you would expect Ooh. Yeah, back for more, Billy. (laughs) (laughs) And then with with a lot of really bad horror puns all the way through it. Right. And not to slag off Michael Gornick's work on this, because he did a lot with with what little he had. Apparently, he was really under some stress. We we chose Prescott, Arizona, and Arizona in general because Mm -hmm. of weather conditions. We had a number of delays getting the film off the ground. Um... Uh, primarily in terms of financial backing. And so when we found ourselves late in the year, we tried to find the most opportune place to uh, to shoot the film efficiently and quickly. Uh, we uh, decided that given the amount of exterior footage that was needed for uh, the two episodes, Raft and Old Chief Woodenhead in particular, mm-hmm. that we needed um, a uh, portion of the country that uh, had fair weather days. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we localized that through the help of AccuWeather to Arizona, and then based upon scouting uh, photographs and some memory on my part, uh, we decided that uh, Prescott was a good base. Once you lose uh, George Romero, Stephen King basically writes the outline for it, and then by the time the new director comes on, Stephen King kind of says, I'll do my cameo cameo in the the last little short of this, and then that's it. So Stephen King's kind of not really interested Mm-mm. anymore. Tom Savini walks from the makeup, so that's when they get in Greg Nicotero and all of right. them who are still starting out. They're still becoming kind of big. A little bit of history with them is they started under Tom Savini and right. and, and uh, uh, George Romero back in the old days because uh, right. they grew up in the same town together. Right. And and worked on, like, I think Dawn of the Dead together is what Greg Nicotero said. Right. Yeah. And of course we all know Greg Nicotero is the head of the makeup department for the walking dead right he's on the producers and directors he's a big guy he's a big thing now yeah right he is I th- he started as the head of makeup and then right. got so heavily involved with the show uh that 
took on bigger and more important roles. Right, which I love him for because there, there's so many ways you can go when you're in real practical effects, and he forged ahead pushing what he could onto the medium of movies and TV with real practical effects. And you can go that way and hope that you end up finding a living, which mm-hmm. some have done and some haven't. Uh, you can give over to the CG thing. Hopefully you can find a way in on that. Right. And maybe model stuff that they can scan with a computer. Or you unfortunately have to do what Rick Baker did, which was sell all of his shit off and re- retire. He was forced in retirement. So, And that that's just sad. So it's good for Greg Nicotero. But it's so unfortunate for Rick Baker because that guy's a fucking artist. Yeah, he is. But uh, the movie... After Billy gets his comic book, it starts to turn into animation. And what you notice right away is that it just doesn't have that same comic book stylized design feel that uh, Romero brought to the first one. And the animation is just not so great, in my opinion. It just becomes this really poorly, almost like heavy metal-esque animation. Yeah. yeah. And like I said, the animation is so bad, it makes it that much worse. Yeah, it makes G.I. Joe animation look really good. (laughs) Pork chop sandwiches. (laughs) Pork chop sandwiches. Oh, shit. Get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? Go. Get the fuck out of here, you stupid idiot. Fuck, we're all dead. Get the fuck out. So from that, we go to credits, and then after credits... The creep interrupts. Right. Back at his castle. He introduces the stories through narration now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He's he's out of the um, the outfit, and he's wearing the robes, and he's in this scary castle. Right. So go, going into the first story, we have the creep who is now dressed in his Count Dracula outfit <laughs> with, his, <laughs> with his scary, horrible animation going on and his over-the-top voice introducing the first story, which is... Oh, chief, wooden yeah, and it's uh, it's the comic book image, the animated comic book image that fades into the real image. It's kind of like the other movies, but not as well done. Right. It fades to live action. Much of, uh, if you remember Creepshow 1, in terms of the backgrounds, which uh, I innovated with George in terms mm-hmm. of strengthening points of high emotion and... Uh, and, and, and high script points, uh, I simply couldn't afford. I didn't have studio space. Uh, much of that, uh, and certainly no optical budget. Um, so much of that is dependent upon a very controlled uh, studio situation. And having none of that, uh, nor the luxury of time uh, and money, uh, I had to forego that and try to find the, the next, next possible best link to uh, the EC comics, which mm-hmm. was a fuller animation. I think I have fuller animation in around the stories than in Creepshow 1. Right, and we're in this old, not old as in old West days, but it's just a rundown old Western town that has a general store and stuff, but it's pretty dilapidated town. It could be probably about 10 miles from here in, <laughs> outside of Santa Fe. But, uh... Yeah, it's a main street that's dirt road, and there's three or four buildings, and they all look pretty abandoned. And right, like a general store and stuff. Right, like right. You see uh, some Native uh, American fellows working on an old Pontiac, and it has overheated and all that stuff. And then we transition over to the um, general store, and George Kennedy comes out and basically starts talking to the. Chief Woodenhead, this his kind of buddy over the years, his wooden cigar Indian that sits on his right. front porch of his store. 
Yeah, he's just doing like upkeep on them, like repainting yeah. the stripes. And... He's repainting the war paint on his cheeks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's time for a touch up, my old friend. Sun's bleaching out your colors again. We got to keep your war paint fresh. So not to get too mired down in the whole story of this and, and get into a lot of details. Basically, George Kennedy and his wife, they're elder couple that own this general store in this small, dilapidated town. Uh, George Kennedy's got a big heart, and he gives out a lot of credit instead of collecting money like he should. Uh, the wife is just basically wanting to get the money and sell the place so they can get out of this town because it's going nowhere and retire and all that stuff. And at that time, uh, one of George Kennedy's friends, who happens to be a chief in the Indian tribe in that area, uh, is pulling up right then. It's cleverly enough, it's a Pontiac chief. But, uh, right. <laughs> and, and the old, the tribesman elder comes out, you know, and uh, they... Long story short, he basically gives him a, uh, a satchel of his tribe's uh, prized possessions, one piece from every family in the tribe, right. to, to hold for two summers uh, as, as collateral on everything that his tribe owes him. And, uh, right. and, if, and if we don't pay you back within two years, keep it. Now, there's no way in hell I'm gonna take these things away from your people. It is a bad thing to borrow. It is a worse thing to beg. While you hold a line, we are borrowers. We can still have pride. And uh, yeah, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, his wife is all hunky dory on the situation. Right. Anyway, so I guess related to this. Yeah, it's his nephew. His nephew. Okay, so the nephew of this uh, chief. Yeah. Yeah, the chief that comes in to talk to uh, George Kennedy's character who owns this shop. Uh, he's uh, kind of the Biff Tannen. What are you looking at, butthead? Yeah. <laughs> it, it took me years to realize this. <laughs> right, right, right. This is, all, this is all on Tim. When I watched this movie back in February, right. it totally hit me like a ton of bricks. Right, you know? we're talking about the Indian chief's nephew here. Because that character that he plays, he has really long, black, well-manicured hair, you know, right. like a Native uh, American guy would. Right. But he's not Native American. <laughs> he, right. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I, we're probably going to butcher this name, but the, ca- the <laughs> character actor who plays this pain-in-the-ass Native American dude is Holt McKenney, I think his name is. but right. And you may recognize him from one of our favorites, Fight Club, yep. who Fight basically, Club. when, when Meat, Meatloaf gets his head blown off, right. he's the way I understand. He's the guy that with the, with the crop top haircut that goes, In death, a member of Project Mayhem has a name. His name is Robert Paulson. That guy. And right. he's also in our other favorite TV series, <laughs> yeah, uh, Mindhunter. Director. Yeah, and direct, and director too. Same director. That's probably why they're to get. Yeah, he, he used him again. But he's yeah. in the Mindhunter series, and he plays uh, the older, more seasoned FBI of the two part FBI partners in the in the. Right. He's a fantastic um, actor too. Really good. Yeah, he really is. And he's got great hair in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's obviously a wig, but he's so young and skinny, especially after seeing him in Mindhunter. Yeah, because, I mean, this was 30 years ago. <laughs> right, right. So he's obviously packed on uh, one and a half times himself <laughs> since then. But um, 
And he's very not Native American. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You would never. Yeah. But I, w- I wouldn't have thought that back in the day. Me you know? either. I wouldn't yeah. have thought that either. But yeah, that's odd. <laughs> he has. He does put an inflection in his voice that almost does have a little bit of a right. that Native American accent to it. Right. I'm going to Hollywood, man. And this hair is going to get me paid and laid. It's just weird to think in 1986 they're hiring a guy who's basically in brownface yeah. around other real Native uh, Natives, <laughs> right, right. I know. That's, yeah, nice. We're not in the PC era yet, you know? Right, right, of course. So moving forward a bit, uh, Holt's character shows up with these two other guys. Uh, Holt's character is definitely the leader of these two guys. Uh, one guy's kind of a geeky upper-class guy that's kind of hanging out with them with the nice car and everything. And then the other guy's kind of a, a heavyset hick. And they're there to rob the place because basically Holt's character being related to the chief knows that the chief gave George Kennedy's character this jewelry to hold. And this jewelry's worth a lot of money. And it's enough money to get him all the way to Hollywood. Hollywood. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, this hair's taking me all the way to Hollywood, baby. Yeah. yeah. It's weird how they call the heavyset guy Fatso in it. He, he has this weird cackle that he does that's kind of annoying. <laughs> And Holt's always playing with his hair, his long hair. He keeps bragging about how handsome he is, and take, he gets in the photo booth, and he's taking pictures of himself, and he's like, aw, damn. So the acting's not great from everyone in this, but Holt and George Kennedy are selling yeah, this. It, yeah. They're great. George and Holt and all of them are giving their best. So it's kind of riding on the performance alone at right. this point. Yeah, and it's enjoyable that way. But anyway, moving forward with the story, Holt's character ends up shooting the wife. And killing her, and then George Kennedy comes to her aid. I guess they think he's going to attack, and then they shoot and kill him. And then Holt grabs some stuff. The other guys that are with him, part of his team, grab some stuff, and then they're out of there, and they're on their way. He basically says, we're going to Hollywood tonight. We're leaving tonight. Everybody go home. They get in, the, they get in a fancy car. Right. You know, it's not really that fancy. It's an old <laughs> Firebird from the 70s. <laughs> right. And uh, Well, he yeah, Holt basically tells the guys, hey, go home, get your stuff, come pick me up afterward. We're going to Hollywood. And that's that. So as soon as they drive off... Then we come into the Chief Woodenhead up on his perch up there on the steps, and he starts to move. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And every time something like that weird happens, like he moves, this weird, totally 80s guitar thing hits in the score. It's funny. But the makeup on Old Chief Woodenhead is really, really good, I think. Yeah, there's a guy in a, like a rubber yeah. suit that looks like wood, yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really well done. Chief Woodenhead essentially dips his fingers in the paint can that was left out and finishes his war paint and then howls at the moon like a right. stereotypical Hollywood Indian would, you know, I don't, you know. <laughs> right, war's coming. And that's what happens. All three of them end up getting picked off. The first one starting with the kid that they call, uh, that's, that's actually in the credits labeled as Fat Stuff Givens. <laughs> yeah. He's in his he's in his trailer. He's in his trailer watching something. I don't know what that show is, but it must be a real show. Something. Yeah. I don't. I'm, but I have no idea what it's, it is. I think it was the same show that the rich kids' parents are watching too. You know, it's like some his <laughs> you know Hispanic show, but it's not. I mean, Hispanic themed, like southwestern right. themed. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, there's a point where he's looking for a, I think a pony or a horse, and the the, the horse is named Loco. And on the TV, on the TV, you hear, Loco! 
That, well, the actor on the TV is calling out for this horse or whatever. And this big fat guy's got a beer and a candy bar and he starts going back. And it's really weird and funny. And it's another one of the things that Derek and I like to, <laughs> to this day, pass back and forth to each other via text or... Uh, and as he does that, he yeah, he takes arrows into it, you know, several arrows that come out of nowhere. So that's his death. We go yeah. to the more the rich kid's house. He's packing kid, up the car. Yeah. He's the the garage. Uh, the kid comes into the garage and the car is completely smashed to smithereens. Right. And he's like, "What the fuck?" And then well, as soon as the, the the door closes behind him, the shadow of the Chief Woodenhead comes up with an axe, and he doesn't see it coming, and the axe comes right. down on a big splatter of blood on the on the door. And, right. And then the garage door shuts as you see his body kind of like Jesus emblemed on the front of his car in <laughs> right. place of the firebird. <laughs> and then last but not least... Right. Old Holt. He's going to get Holt, yeah. And uh, Chief Woodenhead comes and attacks, and there's a bit of a scuffle. Yeah, he bursts into the front door, essentially, and he goes, hey, You're not alive, man. You can't be alive. And he starts blasting him with the shotgun. Right, and Holt runs from Chief yeah. Woodenhead at this time and ends up going... He locks himself into the bathroom, and right. then the, the Chief Woodenhead's hand shoves through the door and pulls his head through the... I mean, shoves his head th through the wall and right. pulls his head through the wall and pulls that big, long, beautiful ponytail... <laughs> and uh, you see him rear his knife. He's got his his, his cutting knife Scalping and knife, scalps yeah. him. Yeah. yeah. And then the next morning, he's up on a stoop holding the scalp. He's back to the way it was. You know. Right. And that's when the chief the chief wakes yeah. up with the jewels back in his hand in a, in right. bed, and he and he comes to confront George Kennedy and realizes shit. And then realizes, and... yeah, right. And yeah. he says something like, "Rest in peace, Chief Woodenhead," or something like that. Right, and, that's and then that's the, the end of that one. And again, it's a—I think it's a cool story. And if it would have just had a little bit of the style behind it, it could have mm -hmm. been a really great one. It could have been one of those ones that's like, yeah, that's that's fucking cool. I remember this movie having a pretty big impact on me in '87, all that stuff, yeah. and 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 you know, because you're at like, like we've mentioned in other episodes, you're at that younger age, you're more impressionable, and yeah, you don't see seediness as much, you know, right. and you can't see how the lack of quality compared to the original movie, right? No, so you're just excited for a, another adventure, of right? That yeah, you know, right? interesting ideas, right? And this next story is an is an interesting idea. <laughs> Right. I almost, um, I, I'm like 80% sure I remember this, the raft being in Skeleton Crew, the book. Right. Yeah. yeah. With the mist. The mist was in Skeleton Crew. That was like the longest story in there. Yeah. Badass story too. But moving on with our next story, after we do a little interlude with the creep again, we move on to our next story, which is entitled The Raft. This was yeah. one of my favorites, not the favorite of mine, but it was one of my favorites when I first saw it because I loved it. It reminded me of The Blob a lot. It does, yeah. So, so I loved it for that, and it also has boobs. And right. I love both right, of those things. Right. <laughs> Although, you know, when I watched it last week, uh -huh. I have a stinking suspicion that she was a body double because of the way it's edited. They never, uh -huh. show, they never show boob and face together. And the girl who was the actress... Her body is 
even though she's wearing a t-shirt most of the time, it's not quite as taut as the girl who shows her stomach and chest. Oh, really? Yeah, and her, her head is never in frame when that happens. Oh, weird. Yeah, and and they keep her face was in it. Yeah. No, well they keep jumping, they keep cutting to it. just a, a oh. neck up shot of her, and she's moaning, okay. and then yeah, she turns her head to one side. Uh, but anyway, okay. it's the basic concept of this is it's two guys, two girls, college age, right? Pothead stoners heading up right. to this secluded lake with it has a raft on it that, and it's and it's later in the season. I think it's September, right? Uh, so it's a little chilly, but um. And it's supposed to be a good place to go party and get laid kind of thing. Right. No one's going to bother you. Right. Right. A little bit of summer that somebody forgot to clean up and put away. The guys get on the lake. Don't put the raft in. The lake's almost ready to freeze. Yeah, well, it better be there, Poncho. So they go out there. There, they, sw- they swim out. I guess one of the actual stories is because they shot this so late in the year. The, the main kid who ends up surviving till the end of this Mm-hmm. He, he almost died of hypothermia. Oh, wow. <laughs> they had to be rushed yeah. to the hospital during Yikes. one of the shots. Yeah, well, so. the other guy was a beefcake. <laughs> <laughs> that, there's something about that guy and the way he yeah. portrays that 80s uh, kind of jock douche. Right. He nails it because maybe he's yeah. not acting. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but even the way he does like his cool guy strut, you know, when they're, once they right. do swim out to the raft and they're on there and he's like, come, and they call each other Poncho and Cisco or something yeah, like that. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's really annoying the way he moves around and walks around and kind of shakes his butt. <laughs> and it's gross. And he's wearing a bright yellow Speedo, too. Yeah, ooh, something <laughs> for the ladies. But anyway, it's it's these four kids. Uh, two of them seem to be a couple. The other two seem to be setting up, being set up or something like that. Right. But it's, the kid that survives to the end doesn't seem to be into the girl they're setting him up with. Yeah, he seems yeah, they, to be into the other guy's girl. Right. But, but they get to this lake, and they see this raft in the middle of the lake, and they all start stripping down and start to head out. Let's go! They actually see the thing before they get to the raft, and they're trying to hurry the fuck up. Because as yeah. they're swimming to it, the, a loon gets sucked in out of nowhere. They both start to panic, and they get there really fast. The boys get on the raft first. The girls are dragging way behind. And then I think the uh, the pretty girl is, gets on just barely. Come on. Help me get her up here. Swim. Swim. She's pulled up onto the raft because this big gelatinous Black. of... Yeah, black oil slick soot. looking thing. Yeah, that's and that's what they call it. It's like an oil slick, and he's like, I'm, right. I've never seen an oil slick move under its own power, and it just comes. He says it looks like it was chasing after the girls and all that, you know. Oh come on, Poncho! You said you sobered up, man. It looked like it was going after the girls. It looks like I mean they do this overhead shot where it's looking at the raft and this thing coming up on it at the same time, and it looks like a, a like a, a dirty black giant condom. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's kind of going. And basically, so this is a, a part of where the, the, the budgetary issues start coming. Right, right. So the, this thing was supposed to look pretty cool. And in the close-up shots, it kind of does. It has like right. a kind of fibrous, uh, spongy look to it. Right. But on the big overhead shots, it's basically a, 
like you said, it's a big tarp that's been painted black, and they're just right. dragging it with with rope or cable, right. you know, through the water. Yeah, you can tell where the taunt part of it is. Right. That's, yeah. That's right. Pulling the rest of the thing that's not connected, but uh, yeah. So this this is one of those things where they kind of just had to give over to. Well, we just don't have the budget. We can't do any more than this. So that's that. But it was supposed to, I guess, in the early stages when they were writing up how it was supposed to do. This is probably still when uh, George Romero was still attached to it. It was supposed to like have this. Uh, heavingness to it, like it mm-hmm. was breathing and mm-hmm. bubbling, and 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 like if you saw the remake of the the Blob in '88, yeah. it was supposed to have a lot of that in it, right? Where it could reach out, grab things, and stuff like that. Had it had a lot of life to it, and this mm-hmm. just they just didn't have the budget to make that to fruition. <laughs> they do. A little bit of that, but very scaled right. back, you know. Right. But one thing we should mention is that this is the particular vignette, the the story in the movie that slowed things down and caused a lot of trouble for the director, Michael Gornick. Despite the uh, the the advice and the recommendation of AccuWeather, of course, uh, we had some dreadful weather. Uh, is that right? Yeah, there was a hurricane in the Baja. We wound up losing uh, nearly eight days to rain in Arizona. As uh, luck would have it... Uh, because we had uh, to schedule actors being three stories. Uh, right. We had to take a gamble and, and move ahead with the raft, uh, which, uh, because of its total exterior nature, we, uh, in losing those eight days, we fell incredibly behind schedule. Mm-hmm. So at this point, uh, we were very stressful. By the time we shot old Chief Woodenhead, we were already some ten days behind schedule. Oof. So you had to move fast. We had to move fast, and... Uh, during the majority of these scenes, I'm somewhere uh, at the uh, call of cut uh, offset with the bonding company. Is that right? Who's urging me to speed up, and do you really have to go on to Maine after you finish here in Arizona? <laughs> but uh, getting back to the story, I believe the uh, blob or uh, oil slick might be getting into some trouble. Because that's what happens is the first quiet girl essentially is kind of mesmerized by it, and she's right. she starts... She's got a cigarette sticking in her, her hand, and she's, and she's sticking her finger in it. <laughs> and then, and then the, they, the, all of a sudden, the thing just kind of comes out of the water and right. grabs her arm and starts to pull her in and suck her in. And, and you can see the, the skin is boiling and bubbling underneath the black yeah. stuff that grabbed her. That and, stuff's all pretty good. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then, she, so, oh. yeah, that's how she gets taken out. And they do this thing where she's slowly covered in it, and she goes right. under, comes back up. And she's up. saying it hurts, it hurts. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then her skin's slowly kind of dissolving around her body. And then that, I remember watching it as a kid and seeing that one, because I actually saw this movie, in a, pers- a little personal aside, I saw this in the theater, because I was super excited for oh, it wow. seeing okay. the original. So I got to see this one in the theater. That's cool. And, uh thinking that you know that one was like oh geez that was awful and everything but the one that happens next to the douchebag guy you're talking about yeah that, that was really awful that one kind of haunted me for a while yeah, me too yeah because they they start panicking and freaking out and the dude the mr cool is losing his cool he's like what the fuck is this shit poncho <laughs> come on man you read all the science books huh? you're the brain ball what the fuck is that thing nothing like this any science book i ever read because the kid is like uh doing all the science studies in college <laughs> right you know the raft. you know how a raft has gaps in the planks right goes underneath the raft and reaches up through the planks and goes up his leg yeah. and just starts pulling him through Ugh. yeah and what happens is is his other leg doesn't go in the hole it goes right. up 
And uh, yeah, so it's like it's at like a 45 degree angle uh, or, or more like a 60 degree angle up for a little bit because because his friend is holding his hand trying to keep him from getting sucked right. in. And he's like, it's too strong, it's too strong, and then he can't right. hold on. And then all of a sudden, the thing, the guy drops down like another maybe six inches, and the leg does this snap <laughs> thing, and knee basically goes right up into his, just like a uh, uh, gold member. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, gold member with the with his splits and stuff. I'm very limber. I love gold. Yeah, and then he he basically gets sucked through, and so now the girl. Freaks out. The, the pretty girl that, yeah, just freaks the fuck out, and she jumps up on the, the littler <laughs> Little. guy. Yeah, and he's like, I can't hold you. I can't. And he, the whole time, the thing is bubbling up through the cracks of the right. raft, and he's trying to stay on the planks while balancing her. Yeah. Yeah. They end up doing this whole routine where they got to stay up through the night and take turns and blah, blah, blah. And then, right. and then morning. Eventually, that, that, that thing moves away. Yeah, it does it's move. It's like it, once it feeds, it kind of goes away for a little bit and then comes back. It's like keeping vigilance on them, but it, it moves right. away from them. So in the, he sees it out there in the morning. The sun comes up and for whatever reason starts feeling maybe it's morning wood. He's like, <laughs> this is a good time for me to bang this chick. Maybe I should do rape right now. <laughs> yeah, it's just the stupidest fucking thing. Yeah. So he basically lays the girl down because they were like hugging each other to stay warm through the night. And he lays the girl down on the on the raft and he start he starts lifting her shirt up and and this is where the yeah. boob shot comes in. Right. And she's moaning and groaning, but she's also seeming a little discomforted. And uh, you know that this is the tit exposure thing and. He's right. like coming up to the grab her tit and lick on her, and her face is turned to the side. Right. And, she, and then and she that moaning, moaning, the moaning starts turning into a little more distressed sound. Right. And he, he panics and, and pulls her shirt back down and lifts up, and then pulls, turns her head back to him, and her face is covered half with the black shit. It had come back up through the. Yeah. And it's. It's, he stands up, freaking out, and it's it's basically grabbing her from over the side of the raft. Right. The black ooze. And she's fighting it for a little while. Right. And it eventually sucks her off the raft into the pile. And this is where you get... He's just standing there, still freaking out. And that's where you see the girl comes up as kind of like a skeleton with black tar all over it. Right. And then yeah. until it sleeps. And so he's like, fuck it. Now it was my chance to go. Right. And he... He he jumps and all the while the the douchebag uh, speedo guy's Camaro is parked on the beach with the uh, right. doors open and the really really bad rock music playing, and I'm I'm amazed the battery didn't die overnight, but it's still playing. Yeah. And so he's swimming for it like a motherfucker, and the thing c gives chase, right? And Slowly giving chase. Yeah, yep. it's getting closer and closer and closer. Yep. yep. And then he finally reaches the shore and he stands up and gets out of the water and falls down. And he, he goes, I beat you! And then the black tar thing does this tidal wave thing over the top of him. <laughs> and we basically cut to the scene of the Camaro, and we see the black tar pulling pulling back into the lake with there's a big a lump. lump inside there's a little lump in the middle <laughs> of it, yeah. Right. And, then it, and then they pan over to a sign that says, no swimming. Right. Yeah, that's, and then that's, that's it. That's basically that story. Yeah, and this is my second favorite story as a kid when I watched this, mainly because of the boobs. Uh, but the blob. I think helped. this <laughs> this next one is my favorite one. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. This oh, one yeah. too. It, yeah. it, it, it's kind of like it's the crate. What the crate right. was to me in the first one, 
Yeah. This story is to me in 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 the second one because it's great. Right. Yeah. No. It yeah absolutely is. But before we go any further in this show, we still have to pay up one final phobia story from Tim. Tim, take it away. The last story I'll tell is from Denver. You know, when I was living in the Denver area, I went with my sister-in-law and her daughter to a Cirque du Soleil show that was down in downtown Denver. And it was one of the mobile tents. And it was a Mexican-themed Cirque du Soleil. I don't know the name of it. It came off as a little racist to me. There was a certain point where there was these dancing figurines and and people and women in traditional, you know, like uh, Hispanic dress and all that stuff twirling around and these two guys came out in these six foot tall cockroach outfits you know because of the song la cucaracha and all that shit and i'm like well one that's fucking racist and two it's fucking disgusting and i couldn't watch it they were detailed enough that they looked like they even had the big antenna it was basically like they were standing up on their on their hind legs like dancing around and they had little legs jiggling off of them i still had my paper ticket you know it was like a big I, I printed it off of a, you know, like a, whatever it is, 11 by 8 pieces of paper, whatever it is. And I was having to hold it up in front of my face to cut the two cockroaches out, but still be able to watch the show from like half of it. And my sister-in-law was like, she's just cracking up. And she's like, what is your deal? And she's like, I ha- I'm deathly afraid of cockroaches. I cannot watch this. And she's just laughing at me the whole fucking time. And, I, and until they left the arena, this, the circle, I would, I had to keep the paper up in front of my face. So that's why I cannot watch, you know, and, and yet I was able to watch it when I was 12 because I had no exposure to it. So yeah, once we do another little interlude with the creep and its bad animation yeah yeah he he we get a little bit more animated story of that little kid from the beginning billy he goes to the post office picks up this package uh ends up getting caught by these neighborhood bullies kicks one in the balls and then is off as these bullies chase him and then the creep comes back in and is introducing the very next story but all of that is it's stupid Right, yeah, exactly. But he introduces a new short, which is... The Hitchhiker. (laughs) Yeah, this is great. Yeah. And apparently, this is a really weird thing that I was reading in research, is that the woman in this, Annie, the... She's, like, having an affair. Yeah, he's like a gigolo. Oh, is he? Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. But I guess the woman was supposed to be played by Barbara Eden from I Dream of Jeannie. Really? I, you know, yeah. That's so weird that you say that. I was going to make some Harper Valley PTA jokes last night. I never did. <laughs> uh, when we were texting. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, I read that and I was like, that's just odd. That's just really weird, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, there's a, there's a woman named Annie. She wakes up at apparently her, her gigolo. <laughs> yeah. Her, 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 her go-to gigolo. Uh, at house and the alarm didn't go off she was supposed to get up at a certain time so she could get home so the old husband wouldn't know about it right he's she's got to beat him home because he exactly because on, on her, when she's driving through town she's talking about i gotta get home i gotta do 20 miles in 
15 minutes or something like that. And he's like, that's impossible. And then she's saying, you know, she goes, she starts ranting on about how he's never late. He's always on time. Uh, not Mr. George Lansing Esquire. Unthinkable. 11.30 means 11.30. Not 11.29. Not 11.31. Not 11.30. Little exposition there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, she's, uh, in, he's obviously a doctor. Uh, right. That's what they, you know, that you find out too. And uh, she's driving a, uh, like a 560 SEL Mercedes. And uh, at the, t and it's, it, I'm just going to go a little car nerdy on me. It's in full <laughs> Euro trim, which is sweet. You didn't see a lot of those like that. It has the, uh, the flush glass headlights and the small European bumpers. So it makes it extra sexy. Nice. And, uh, yeah, she's kind of going through the small town and she's talking to herself a lot the whole time, right. trying to explain her way out, like coming up with excuses and, you know. So we, the audience, aren't just watching her driving with. Right. Quietly. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. they wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't work with it. That's why certain characters in certain movies look in a refrigerator and go, I'm still not hungry. <laughs> 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 yeah she reaches a point though where she gets close to the highway and she's lighting up a cigarette or something like that and ends up dropping it on herself and loses control of the car and goes let goes hits the guardrails and jumps goes across the highway and starts spinning out and shit and then you see this guy in a yellow one of those like fisherman's raincoats right and uh boom he goes flying over the top of the car you know and, and right. when she comes to a stop you know, she's got a bloody spot on her forehead, and she kind of comes to and realizes she hit the guy and killed him. It was this black guy, uh, hitchhiker, with a cardboard cutout sign that says Dover on it. Right, yeah, that's where the hitchhiker is <laughs> yeah. going. Right. And she gets out of her car, maybe to assist, sees that there's headlights coming around the bend behind her, and then freaks out, jumps back in her car, and pulls out, and now it's a hit and run. Uh, shortly down the road, there's a semi that passes her. And then we, cu we cut back to the accident scene. Um, and it's a BMW 6 Series. An old, uh, it was new at the time, comes in. And, you know, so it's another high uh, society vehicle. Right. You can start drawing conclusions already. <laughs> and um, he stops and gets out. And uh, another, the, 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 by that point, the semi-truck stops and... Lo and behold, Stephen King is the uh, semi-truck driver. And, uh, you know, he starts talking to the, do to the doctor and all that stuff. And, and, and while that's going on, a third car pulls up. He's like, I, he, well, he says, I saw this uh, car whiz by a second ago, but I couldn't tell what it was. Its lights were off. I don't know, you know, in that typical Stephen King acting style, <laughs> the, the couple gets out of the third car that pulls up a station wagon or something, and they go, what happened? And he goes, what do you think's happened? The guy got creamed. That's what happened. It happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and he's lighting a flare, you know, and put, yeah. Right. It's just a funny scene. Yeah. You can't blame that acting on George Romero, Stephen. <laughs> no, no, you can't. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, she's it's more of her heading down the road, talking to herself, trying to rationalize it to herself. She basically says, uh, if I can't live with it, I'll turn myself in tomorrow. Right. And she seems to start feeling a little better about the situation, although she's continuing to second guess herself and all of this. And then she starts to see a very familiar face, a little more bloody, but 
it's the hitchhiker again right. and he's holding the dover sign yeah and his face is all messed up and 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 she she stops the car and kind of freaks out you're seeing things bitch you can't live with it when she looks over her shoulder he's gone and then the all the it was kind of a jump scare that all of a sudden he's in the window and he goes how you doing lady thanks thanks for the ride which is another. Yeah, that's another line that we like to use all the time in our repertoire of movie quotes. And so, I mean, to not drag it out, this continues to happen. Or she speeds away, or she'll hit him, or yeah, he, he tries to get in the worse. car. He right. shoots, she shoots at him. Uh, He's riding stuff. on the and, roof of the car yeah. at some point. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And 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 the worse the damage gets the worse he looks and so oh yeah each time yeah it's like you know his face is messed up a really good example of gory prosthetic practical effects right and th- this is one of those those things that okay if they had to make the raft scene look a little less so they could use more budget on this guy right bravo good call good call <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, essentially, you know, after dealing with this guy for the, the next five, ten minutes, at, you know, she's, like, driving through the forest and shit to get right. used to trees to try and not. And, the, and there's, like, bumpers falling off. These beautiful European bumpers that are worth <laughs> right. so much on the aftermarket are getting ripped off the car. And right. uh, But she gets to a certain point where she's in the forest, and she, the guy is riding, at this point, riding on the hood of the, 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 or the yeah. front bumper. Raiders of the Lost Ark style. St- yeah, totally. <laughs> he's, he's, like, he's got the splits and all that. And you know what I noticed, right. too, is it's a real dude up there. Yeah. Because he's, he's patting his yeah. hands like a real man. It's not a doll. Yeah, I noticed that, too. I'm like, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she basically goes into the forest again and just goes head on into a tree. And, uh, and she's not done. <laughs> she's, yeah, she, she backs up, and the guy is just like he's taking this like awful, like last breath kind of yeah. thing. And, and then she just goes gargle even. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she just rams him again, backs up, rams him again. I think she does it maybe four or five times until she hits her head in the wheel again and passes out. Yeah, so yeah, she yeah, she passes out, wakes up, nothing she backs her car up, realizes there's nothing in on the tree. Yeah, the tree there's, there's no, no per, there's no body there's, there. That guy's not there, he's gone right. now. Hit a tree, that's all. The whole thing was a dream. There was no hitchhiker. So she continues home, actually makes it home, pulls right. into the, the garage. The car is smoking and steaming, yeah. and the front end is tacoed, and the rear bumper's falling off, and there's blood stains everywhere. There's blood stains everywhere. And guess who's not home? Yeah, and her, and her husband is not home. <laughs> For the first time in recorded history, he's late. The car gets smashed. My brain gets bent. Because as we learned, her husband was the guy in the Beamer who stopped to help the hitchhiker. Right. right. So he, he was obviously occupied with this Detained. dead guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so... Yeah. She yeah. opens the door, essentially, and the guy comes out from underneath the car, the, the hitchhiker. Obliterated. This guy's Yeah. Obliterated. His face is mangled. <laughs> like, his jaw is about 
four inches lower than it should be and <laughs> up against his neck. And his, yeah. he's got this big meaty tongue hanging out. Yeah. Both eyeballs are there, but there's no longer any eye sockets. So they're just kind of oh. dangling out. It's messed up. And he's still able to talk, though. And he's going, <laughs> Yeah, it's super, it's super guttural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he and gets right up on her, like right on her, right on her face, kissing her cheek. <laughs> yeah, with his big floppy tongue. Yeah, and she's screaming and freaking out. And then I think we go outside the house, and the right. garage slowly closes. Yeah. When then it, it it some time elapses, and then the BMW pulls up into the driveway. The garage opens. Uh, all the smoke's coming out still, and he basically runs out of his car to the uh, to the Mercedes right the husband and opens the door you know you know basically calling his wife's name and then she's in there kind of all gap mouth and cross-eyed and she's got a right. Dover the Dover sign on her <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. and then boom that's the end of that that's one. the end of it yeah and then we wrap up with the animated story that involves the creep and of course Billy's story yeah uh, with the bullies he leads the bullies yeah yeah he, he leads the bullies to this like out of the way cul-de-sac uh, development that hasn't been built on it's like keep out and everything the bullies are about to beat him up and Billy stands there with a smile on his face and out of nowhere these giant like feed me plants <laughs> venus flytrap things sprout up and they're like i don't know 50 feet tall gigantic and it's something that we find out that he's ordered out of the creep show magazine when he went to the post office there were little pods he was picking up and that's what they were and he's already had some and and had planted them out in this field and these big and they'd already grown up you know what i mean yeah, and they're like, feed me! <laughs> yeah, and they basically, they're just, they're, yeah, they're like Godzilla-sized, practically, and then they yeah. end up eating just, the what? eating the bullies. Yeah, it's really right. stupid. And Yeah, they eat the bullies, and then he does this real... Venus flytraps. Giant Venus flytraps. They eat meat! <laughs> right, yeah, I know, I hated that. <laughs> so bad. Yeah, and, then, and we've... Yeah. we've we basically flip back to the creep again, but in the back of the pick, the truck from the beginning, and he's live action again, and right. uh, basically saying, you know, so long, boys and girls, and all that. Boys Till and next girls. time. Yeah, right. exactly. And he's just uh, the truck's driving off, and he's just throwing magazines out of the right. as as the 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 car is doing Ben Gazzara. <laughs> swerves like from Roadhouse <laughs> you know back and forth it like, makes no sense that the truck is swerving <laughs> right. but uh, it didn't when Ben Gazzara did it either <laughs> right right and that's over the end credits So that comes to the end of it, Big D. Thank you for noticing, Tim. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. anyway, so getting to the end of this whole debacle that was Creepshow 2, there was a lot of, as we mentioned, budgetary issues, which is why uh, George Romero and Stephen King kind of did what they could, executive produced it, and then got out of there. And it didn't turn out to the full potential of what it could have been. The uh, dilemma, the turmoil, the chaos that, was occur that occurred because of the delays and rain 
um, the finger pointing begins, uh. um, and and uh, much of what happened in terms of of a change in crew, be it my first AD or my uh, director of photography, um, uh, was because of that that dilemma of losing time. I see. And, uh, uh, I tried to accept as much of the responsibility as I could, but obviously it was weather-related. And right. uh, unfortunately, when you're in that hotbed of uh, criticism in terms of can we make up time, uh, we're shooting too slowly, uh, now that we're back on set, can we do any better, um, people get stressed. And um, the finger-pointing, not from my from my standpoint, but from producers mm -hmm. who are looking to speed up the process right. and, and finding fault and never pointing to God and say... Why did you bring rain? Right, right. And then ultimately, we have a new creep show television series coming out on the Shutter Network. Right, and it has a kind heart winking back towards the original movies. Yeah, some a lot of the crew from the movies is coming back in honor of George Romero. So you have right because isn't isn't Servini and Nicotero involved in it? Yeah, yeah. Tom Servini is I involved in it at some capacity, but Greg Nicotero is really the main guy bringing this back. He's directing, he's producing, and he's also helping with all of the uh, practical effects that's going to be involved and he's making sure that practical effects are at the forefront of this whole thing which I'm super excited about so it looks it has promise and it looks you know some of the stuff I've seen looks really cool right yeah it has yeah. that and feel. I have I I have a subscription to Shutter, so I'm going to be watching it. Yeah, yeah, I don't, but I will be getting one just because of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love Creepshow, and I, I think it could have been really been a franchise. And to this day, I would love to remake it. I think we could be making Creepshow 7 right now and, you know, having a ball, having a gas. I loved it. I, I still love the idea. I. I uh, you know, I love the old, I love the old EC comic books, and I think that we could really knock one out of the park if we had a chance to do one today. Wrapping it up. So uh, we want to, you know, of course, get the input from the audience. How did this movie affect uh, you growing up, or you know, when did you come into it, and how did you find it, and how did you know, how do you, do you feel it holds up today? Is it still enjoyable to you? All those types of things, you, you know. Find us on our different uh, social uh, social media uh, platforms and and let us know. And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So then uh, we shall end this transmission. Sure, why not? I've got the button. I'm gonna hit it. And I've got this voodoo doll with your clothes on it. I'm gonna stab it. <laughs> oh man, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to sleep tonight.